It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. And I think you reminded me when you were talking about that book by Kevin Dutton of uh, Bobby E. Wright, Psychopathic Racial Personality. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're talking about Bobby Wright, the, the, um, the young brother from Chicago, well, he's, he's not on the planet anymore. He's an ancestor now. Um, he generated a little pamphlet. It must have been about somewhere between 18 and 40 pages long, and it was entitled The Psychopathic Racial Personality. And in a nutshell, it was pretty much pointing out that the, the, the collective mindset of the old boy network among Caucasian men could be pretty much described as a group of psychopaths. I mean, you have to be a psychopath, brother, to literally be, just grossly insensitive to to human life. Um, the Harriet Washington, remember the book on uh, medical apartheid, mm, yes, the medical yes. ethicist that was at Harvard. She goes into detail. I don't remember the person's name now, but the father of um, obstetrics and gynecology, and the father, you know, representing the, the individual that was considered to be the um, the lead man or the king of our knowledge and understanding of obstetrics and gynecology in this country. I mean, perform surgical procedures on black women uh, religiously without anesthesia on the most sensitive and delicate parts of the body. So that is a perfect example of what a sociopath or psychopath, and interestingly enough, that kind of leads back into the gentleman classifying the surgeon as someone most likely to um, have the attributes of a psychopath. But there's something wrong with these people, brother. And I won't digress and start telling you about my personal opinions about the kind of brain damage that I think that they have. Because when you think about emotions, there is a feedback loop along a particular region in the brain. It's called the amygdala, and it's associated with emotions. And I'm suggesting to you that the only emotions that they display are the kind of emotions that would impact their bottom line. 
you know, these are the kinds of people that you hear people saying, like, well, you, you know, you sell your own mother if you thought you could make a dime, that kind of thing. And that's also consistent with what we know about, um, they used to call these um, places where they would place the elderly. They used to call them rest homes. Now they're special sanctuaries for the elderly. And you would find that the, the old parent would be placed in one of those homes, particularly if they were beginning to make their offspring, for lack of a better term, feel a little sensitive or embarrassed about their character. But the dog, <laughs> the dog stays on. The old dog still sleeps on the bed. The dog could throw up on the bed, whatever. The dog is there. It's like they shouldn't have these places for dogs as well. But have you ever seen a place for um, dogs to grow old? Have you? Have you ever seen a place for dogs to grow old? It's not so much that the parent can't be taken care of. They can't be taken care of in the house. It's just that it's more convenient to put them there. You follow me? So what I'm trying to say to you is a psychopath and a sociopath, those individuals, as Bobby Wright was mentioning, they don't have any sense of compassion because it, it doesn't register on their scale of emotionality. It's like it's non-existent. Context of white supremacy, Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Friday, December 1, 2017. So I have been told this is our third study session on Kevin Dutton's The Wisdom of Psychopaths. The subtitle, Lessons in Life from Saints spies, and serial killers. The audio segment that you heard at the beginning, that was Dr. Niana Rasayan. have a bevy of sound clips that I can play for the introduction for the wisdom of psychopaths. We're still going to get in uh, Sam Vaknin, uh, who has done a documentary and written a book on psychopathy as well as narcissism. He's been a guest on this program. Uh, we'll have a little bit uh, intro snippet probably from Dahmer's book as well. Lots more to come, but I had to return to Dr. Niana Rasayan because he mentioned Bobby E. Wright's book, Psychopathic Racial Personality and Other Essays, extraordinarily important book that should be read with this text and or reread and or referenced. I think he does an outstanding job illustrating a lot of the reasons why I say this book is so important, why it should be read why it reveals so much about what it means to be white. He does an extraordinary job synthesizing all of that in his text, which was published about 30 years before this book came out. Uh, he is an ancestor now, but the legend, brilliant scientist, Dr. Bobby E. Wright, psychopathic racial personality and other essays. Absolutely. I will probably read a snippet of that to tie in with the text as we proceed. Uh, we're picking up uh, in Dutton's book. We are on chapter three. We're on the subheading, The Mathematics of Madness. Uh, that's the subheading in chapter three, where we will be starting this week. Uh, without further ado, we will begin. This is the context of white supremacy. This is the wisdom of psychopaths authored by Kevin Dutton, Audio segment number one. The Mathematics of Madness Just how psychopathy got a toehold in the gene pool is an interesting question. If the disorder is so maladaptive, then why does its incidence remain stable across time? 
with an estimated 1 to 2% of the population qualifying as psychopathic. Andrew Coleman, professor of psychology at the University of Leicester, has an equally intriguing answer, one, I suspect, that will forever be close to my heart after a recent entanglement with the Newark Airport Interchange. In 1955, the film Rebel Without a Cause made its cinematic debut. Never before had rebellious, misunderstood youth been portrayed so sympathetically on the silver screen. But enough of the armchair criticism. For game theorists, at least, one scene towers head and shoulders above the rest, the one in which Jim Stark, played by James Dean, and Buzz Gunderson, played by Corey Allen, hurtle in a pair of stolen cars inexorably toward the cliffs in a deadly game of chicken. Let's think about that scene for a moment from the point of view of the drivers, says Coleman. Or rather, think about a more familiar version of it in which the two protagonists accelerate directly toward each other. Each of them has a choice. Adopt the sensible, non-psychopathic strategy of swerving to avoid a pileup, or choose the risky, psychopathic one of keeping their foot on the gas. These choices, with their differential payoff points, constitute a classic you-scratch-my-back-I'll-scratch-yours-or-then-again-maybe-I-won't scenario that we can model using game theory, a branch of applied mathematics that seeks to quantify optimal decision-making processes in situations where outcomes depend not on the actions of the individual parties involved, but rather on their interaction. If Jim and Buzz both go for the sensible option and swerve away from each other, the outcome is a draw with the second-best payoffs going to each. In contrast, if both are psychopathic and decide to see it through, each risks death, or at best, serious injury, and thus each receives the very worst payoff. As Coleman explains, however, if one driver, let's say Jim, opts for caution, while Buzz turns out to be nuts, a differential suddenly appears. Jim drops points and gets the chicken payoff, while Buzz lucks out with a maximum haul. It's a mathematical microcosm of what rubbing shoulders with psychopaths and the Newark Airport Interchange is actually like. And biologically, it works. When the game is played repeatedly in the lab by computer programs specifically encoded with predetermined response strategies, something very interesting happens. When the payoffs are converted into units of Darwinian fitness and the assumption is made that those players in receipt of larger payoffs give rise to a greater number of offspring who then adopt precisely the same strategy the population evolves to a stable equilibrium in which the proportion of individuals consistently behaving psychopathically actually mirrors the observed incidence of the disorder in real life, around 1 to 2%. Whoever keeps their foot on the gas, whoever keeps their nerve, is always going to win, provided, that is, that their opposite number is sane. Behaving irrationally might actually sometimes be rational. In 2010, Hideki Ohira, a psychologist at Nagoya University, and his doctoral student Takahiro Osumi, validated Coleman's theory in the lab. 
Psychopaths, they discovered, under certain extraordinary circumstances, make better financial decisions than the rest of us, for precisely the reason that Coleman had so elegantly demonstrated. They behave in a manner that would otherwise appear irrational. To demonstrate, Okira and Osumi deployed the ultimatum game, a paradigm widely used in the field of neuroeconomics that relates, broadly speaking, to the way we evaluate monetary and other types of gain. The game involves two players interacting to decide how a sum of money they are given should be divided. The first player proposes a solution. The second player decides whether or not to accept the offer. If the second player decides to reject it, then both of the protagonists get nothing. But if the second player decides to accept, then the sum is split accordingly. But psychopaths, Ohira and Osumi discovered, play the game rather differently. Not only do they show greater willingness to accept unfair offers, favoring simple economic utility over the exigencies of punishment and ego preservation, they are much less bothered by inequity. On measures of electrodermal activity, a reliable index of stress based on the autonomic response of our sweat glands, the difference between psychopaths and other volunteers was telling, to say the least. Psychopaths were far less phased than controls when screwed by their opposite numbers, and at the conclusion of the study had more in the bank to show for it. A thicker skin had earned them thicker wallets. Sometimes, Okira and Osumi concluded, it pays to be a psychopath, but in a different way to that shown by Andrew Coleman. Whereas Coleman had demonstrated that it was good to put the boot in, or in his case, put it down, Okira and Osumi had discovered the complete reverse. There was similar worth in taking it on the chin. If you need any convincing of the value of either strategy, just ask someone who's been in the can. To get to the top, send your reputation up ahead of you. Like a flashy, violent streak across the prison sky is how one private investigator has described them. And there aren't too many on either side of the bars who would disagree with him. The Aryan Brotherhood, also known as The Rock, is one of the most feared gangs ever to emerge within the U.S. federal penitentiary system responsible, according to FBI figures, for 21% of murders inside U.S. prisons. Though their members account for a mere 1% of inmates, you can't exactly miss them. Members display walrus-like mustaches, more befitting the Wild West than a modern-day outlaw, and tattoos depicting a shamrock fused with a swastika, with the motif 666 emblazoned upon its leaves. Sport one without permission, and you're invariably asked to remove it, usually with a razor. Brutally elite, the Rock are the special forces of the prison world. Founded in California's San Quentin Supermax high-security facility in 1964 by a group of white supremacists, the Brotherhood was numerically smaller than other prison gangs, but within a matter of just a few blood-spattered months, had skyrocketed to top-dog status. How did they manage it? Well, it doesn't hurt to be smart, that's for sure. Despite the fact that many gang members were incarcerated in other Supermax units, 
often under conditions of 23-hour lockdown, they managed to coordinate their activities through a number of ingenious methods, invisible ink made from urine, and a 400-year-old binary code system devised by the Renaissance philosopher Sir Francis Bacon, no less, being a couple of notable examples. But they were also utterly remorseless and lived, as still they do today, by one simple sinister code, blood in, blood out. Blood in, every prospective member is admitted on the basis of their having already killed a member of a rival gang, and on the understanding that they will carry out further executions to order. Blood out, their only exit card is their own, often hastened, demise whether through an event as vanishingly improbable as natural causes, or, as is infinitely more likely, and in many cases more preferable, through similarly violent means. As members admit, it's a mercilessly minimalist philosophy. There are no half-measures and no questions asked. Fear nothing and no one is the mantra. And what the rock lack in numbers they make up for with nerveless ferocity. Not to mention, as is common in highly motivated psychopaths, ruthless dedication to the task. With access to prison libraries, plus supplementary reading materials from other less official sources, members treat killing like an undergrad science module, poring over human anatomy texts, alongside Nietzsche, Machiavelli, Tolkien, and Hitler to find the parts of the body most vulnerable to sudden trauma. In the warped space-time continuum that exists within a supermax prison, a ten-second window is like a wormhole into eternity, and a fight of such magnitude on the inside equates to a twelve-round slugfest in the extended relativistic orbit of everyday life. Speed is of the essence. In the blink of an eye, much can be accomplished. Windpipes severed, jugulars ripped out, spinal cords pierced, spleens and livers punctured. It's important to know what you're doing should the opportunity present itself. Yet as Barry, one former member of The Rock, pointed out to me, in the impenetrable moral crevices that lurk, unseen and ungovernable, in the fear-darkened corners of a federal penitentiary, such a strategy might be construed as adaptive, as firefighting instead of fire-setting, and it might, in the long run, contain trouble instead of igniting it. Prison, elucidates Barry, is a hostile environment. It has a different set of rules than the outside world. It's a community within a community. If you don't stand up and be counted, someone can move in on you any time they want, so you have to do something about it. You don't have to keep taking people out. That ain't the way it works. Once or twice is usually enough. You do it once or twice and word soon gets around. Don't mess with these guys. Prevention, is what I'm saying, is better than cure. Carpe noctum. Barry's point about conflict resolution is an interesting one and is echoed, in not so many words, by the incarcerated record producer Phil Spector. Better to have a gun and not need it, the magnum-toting screwball once expounded, than to need a gun and not have it, though whether he still believes that now is anybody's guess. 
A more nuanced position is taken by the Chinese military strategist of the 6th century B.C., Sun Tzu. To subdue the enemy without fighting, wrote Sun Tzu, is the highest skill. A skill, as we saw just a moment or so ago, with Jim and Buzz, that's both hard to fake and unequivocally rooted in confidence. Not a false confidence based on bravado, but a real confidence based on belief. Here's Dean Peterson, an ex-Special Forces soldier turned martial arts instructor. Sometimes when you're in a hostile situation, your best option is to match the aggressive intentions of a potentially violent individual and then go one step beyond them, raise them, in other words, to use a poker analogy. Only then, once you gain the psychological ascendancy, shown them, hinted, who's boss, can you begin to talk them down. How better to assert your authority than by convincing prospective challengers that they're beaten before they start? Barry's argument has wider implications, too. For the selection, not just of ruthlessness, but of other psychopathic characteristics such as fearlessness and superficial charm, Conflict, it transpires, isn't the only means of establishing dominance in the natural world. Back in the days of our ancestors, survival, just like in prison, didn't come cheap. Although group membership constituted a significant chunk of the price tag, communities also placed a surprisingly high premium on risk-takers. One observes a similar dynamic in monkeys still today. Male chimpanzees, our closest living relative with whom we share 96% of our DNA, will compete through the direction of unsolicited altruism toward subordinates. It is usually gastronomic in nature, enduring danger to provide the troop with food, sharing out the proceeds of one's own kills charitably, and confiscating those of others for the purposes of reallocation. As the primatologist Franz de Waal points out, instead of dominance standing out because of what they take, they affirm their position by what they give. Of equal note are those primates who compete with each other for status through public service or leadership by facilitating cooperation within the group or, if you prefer, through charisma, persuasion, and charm. Dominant chimpanzees, stump-tailed monkeys, and gorillas all compete by intervening in disputes among subordinates. Yet contrary to expectation, such intervention does not, by default, automatically favor family and friends. It is implemented, as DeWall observes, on the basis of how best to restore peace. Consequently, DeWall continues, rather than decentralizing conflict resolution, the group looks for the most effective arbitrator in its midst, then throws its weight behind this individual to give him a broad base of support for guaranteeing peace and order. Ruthlessness, fearlessness, persuasiveness, charm, a deadly combination, yet also at times a life-saving one. Have the killers of today enjoyed a sneaky evolutionary piggyback on the prowess of yesterday's peacemakers? It may not be beyond the bounds of possibility, though violence, of course, isn't exactly new. The First Psychopaths In 1979, at a remote site near the village of Saint-Césaire in southwest France, 
Christoph Zollikofer of the University of Zurich and a joint contingent of French and Italian researchers made an intriguing discovery. Dating back to the transitional period, when prognathous-jawed, ridge-browed Europeans were undergoing displacement by an anatomically modern influx from Africa, the remains of a skeleton some 36,000 years old had lain in an anthropological coma since the Ice Age. The remains, it was confirmed, were Neanderthal. But there was something rather odd about the skull. It was scarred. The scar in question was on a section of bone approximately four centimeters in length, and it was situated top right. It was not, of course, unheard of for excavations in the field to throw up less than perfect specimens. In fact, it was to be expected. But there was something somehow a little different about this one. It had the whiff of premeditation about it that suggested foul play that alluded less to the vicissitudes of geophysical atrophy and more to the exigency of a prehistoric moment lost deep in the lining of our dark ancestral past. This was no ordinary tale of misadventure, but a lesion caused by violence, or, more specifically, by a slashing or hacking motion indicative of a sharp-bladed implement. Putting two and two together, the position of the scar, the shape of the wound, the fact that the rest of the skull appeared neither fractured nor misshapen, Zolokoffer arrived at a stark conclusion. Interpersonal aggression among humans had a longer lineage than had previously been suspected. Inflicting harm on others came, it would seem, quite naturally. It's an intriguing thought that itinerant Neanderthal psychopaths were doing the rounds of prehistoric Europe some 40,000 years ago. But it's not all that surprising. Indeed, in contrast to the piggyback argument just outlined, the traditional take on the evolution of psychopathy focuses, as we saw in the previous chapter, predominantly on the predatory and aggressive aspects of the disorder. On one of the standard psychopathy assessment questionnaires, the Levinson Self-Report Scale, a typical test item reads as follows. Success is based on survival of the fittest. I am not concerned about the losers. On a scale of one to four, when one represents strongly disagree and four represents strongly agree, rate how you feel about this statement. Most psychopaths are inclined to register strong agreement with such a sentiment, which is not, incidentally, always a bad thing. Two little mice fell in a bucket of cream, says Leonardo DiCaprio, playing the role of Frank Abagnale, one of the world's most celebrated con men, in the film Catch Me If You Can. The first mouse quickly gave up and drowned. The second mouse wouldn't quit. He struggled so hard that eventually he churned that cream into butter and crawled out. I am that second mouse. Yet, at the other end of the spectrum, we run into an altogether different kind of exhortation, such as those espoused in religious, spiritual, and philosophical texts. We find allusions to temperance, tolerance, and the meek inheriting the earth. So which one are you? Psychopath, saint, or somewhere in between? The chances are it's going to be the latter, for which, it turns out, there are sound biological reasons. To plea or not to plea. We've already seen game theory in action earlier in this chapter, 
a branch of applied mathematics devoted to the study of strategic situations, to the selection of optimal behavioral strategies and circumstances in which the costs and benefits of a particular choice or decision are not set in stone but are, in contrast, variable, game theory presents scenarios that are inherently dynamic. Unsurprisingly, perhaps, given game theory's inherent emphasis on the relationship between individual agency and the wider social group, it's not uncommon to find rich encrustations of this semi-precious mathematical outcrop embedded within branches of natural selection, within models and theories of how various behaviors or life strategies might have evolved. Psychopathy, as the work of Andrew Coleman has shown us, is no exception. In order to take up where Coleman left off and explore the evolutionary dynamics of the psychopathic personality further, let's rig up a situation similar to the one Jim and Buzz found themselves in on the cliffs. Only this time, make it a little more personal. Imagine that you and your accomplice are suspected of committing a major crime. The police picked you up and have taken you in for questioning. Down at the station, the chief investigating officer interviews you both separately, but he has insufficient evidence to press charges, so he resorts to the age-old tactic of playing one against the other. He puts his cards on the table and cuts you a deal. If you confess, he will use your confession as evidence against your partner and send him down for ten years. The charges against you, however, will be dropped and you will be allowed to walk away with no further action being taken. Too good to be true? It is. There's a catch. The officer informs you that he will also be offering the same deal to your partner. You are left alone to ponder the arrangement. But during that time, you suddenly have an idea. What if both of us confess, you ask? What happens then? Do we both go to prison for ten years? Or are both of us free to leave? The officer smiles. If both of you confess, he replies, he will send each of you to prison, but on a reduced sentence of five years. And if neither confesses, prison again, but this time for only a year. This officer is smart. Think about it. He has, in effect, made you an offer you can't refuse. The truth of the matter is simple. Whatever your partner may choose to do, you are always better off confessing. If your partner decides to keep his mouth shut, then you face either a year in the slammer for doing the same thing or stroll off into the sunset by informing against him. Similarly, if your partner decides to inform against you, then you either go down for the full term for deciding to hold out or have your sentence by mirroring their betrayal. The reality of both of your predicaments is freakishly paradoxical. Logically speaking, self-preservation dictates that the only sensible course of action is to confess, and yet it's this same paralyzing logic that robs you both of the chance of minimizing your joint punishment by remaining silent. And note that the question of probity, remaining tight-lipped because it's the right thing to do, doesn't come into it. Quite apart from the dubious moral worth of placing oneself in a position that is self-evidently prone to exploitation, the whole purpose of the prisoner's dilemma is to ascertain optimal behavioral strategies not within frameworks of morality, 
with philosophical enforcers working the doors, but within a psychological vacuum of zero moral gravity, such as that which comprises the natural world at large. So could the psychopaths be right? Could it really be survival of the fittest out there? Such a strategy, it would seem, is certainly logical. In a one-off encounter, such as the prisoner's dilemma, you might argue that dog-eat-dog, or strategy of defection, to use the official terminology, constitutes a winning hand. So why not, in that case, just go ahead and play it? The reason, of course, is simple. Life, in its infinite complexity, doesn't go in for one-offs. If it did, and the sum total of human existence was an endless succession of ships passing in the night, then yes, the psychopaths among us would indeed be right, and would quickly inherit the earth. But it isn't, and they won't. Instead, the screen of life is densely populated with millions upon millions of individual pixels, the repeated interaction of which, the relationship between which, gives rise to the bigger picture. We have histories, social histories, with each other, and we are able, unlike the characters in The Prisoner's Dilemma, to communicate. What a difference that would have made. But that's okay. Just as we are able to play The Prisoner's Dilemma the one time, so we can play it a number of times, over and over, substituting prison terms for a system of reward and punishment in which points are won or lost we are able, with the aid of some simple mathematics, to simulate the complexity of real life in exactly the same way as we did with Jim and Buzz. What happens then? Do the psychopaths cut it in a world of repeated encounters? Or is their strategy trumped by simple safety in numbers? Saints Against Shysters To answer this question, Let's imagine a society slightly different from the one we currently live in, a society like that of days gone by, in which the workforce is paid in cash at the end of each week in personalized little brown envelopes. Now, imagine that we can divide this workforce into two different types of people. The first type is honest and hardworking and puts in a full week's work. Let's call them the saints. The other is dishonest and lazy and preys upon its diligent counterparts as they make their way home on a Friday, lying in wait outside the factory gates and appropriating their hard-earned wages for themselves. Let's call them the shysters. At first, it would seem as if the shysters have got it made, that crime pays, and indeed, in the short term, at least, it does. The saints clock in to keep the community going, while the shysters reap a twofold benefit. Not only do they enjoy the advantages of living in a flourishing society, they also, by stealing the saints' wages, get paid for doing nothing. Nice work if you can get it. But notice what happens if the pattern of behavior continues. The saints begin to tire and fall sick. Having less disposable income with which to look after themselves, they begin to die out. Gradually, the ratio of the working population starts to shift in favor of the shysters. But this, of course, is precisely what the shysters don't want. With the number of saints diminishing by the week, the likelihood increases that the shysters will encounter each other. Moreover, even if they do run into a saint, 
there's a greater chance that they'll come away empty-handed. Another shyster may well have beaten them to it. Eventually, if the fun and games are allowed to play out naturally, the power balance comes full circle. The pendulum swings back in favor of the saints, and society reverts to working for a living. But note how history is programmed to repeat itself. The saints call the shots for only such time as the economy is in recession, and the shysters preside for only as long as the saints can keep them afloat. It's a bleak carousel of recurring boom and bust. This brief sketch of two very different work ethics is, to say the least, a simplified representation of an infinitely more complex set of dynamics. Yet it is precisely this simplification, this behavioral polarization, which lends such a model its power. Pure unconditional aggression and pure unconditional capitulation are destined to fail as strategies of social exchange in a society of multiple interaction and multiple dependence. In what essentially amounts to a peripatetic seesaw effect, each strategy is vulnerable to exploitation by the other once one has gained the ascendancy. Once the proponents of the one strategy become enough of a mob to be parasitized by those of the competing strategy. To coin a phrase from the sociobiology lexicon, as strategies for survival, neither unqualified cooperation nor unqualified competition may be regarded as evolutionary stable. Both may be trumped by invading or mutating counter-strategies. But can we actually observe this iterative process in action, this repeated unfolding of the prisoner's dilemma dynamic? We are, after all, firmly in the realm of a thought experiment here. Do these abstract observations pan out in real life? The answer depends on what we mean by real. If in real we're prepared to include the virtual, then it turns out we might be in luck. Virtual Morality Suppose I were conducting an experiment on people's responses to the unexpected, and I presented you with the following opportunity. For a thousand dollars, you must take off all your clothes and walk stark naked into a bar to join a group of friends. You must sit at a table and talk to them for five minutes, that's two hundred dollars a minute, during which time you will feel the full force of the excruciating social embarrassment that will undoubtedly accompany the venture. However, after the five minutes have elapsed, you will leave the bar unscathed, and I will ensure that neither you nor anyone else who is present will have any memory of the event. I shall erase it all. Apart from the crisp bundle of notes burning a hole in your pocket, it will be as if nothing had ever happened. Would you do it? In fact, how do you know you haven't done it already? There are some people, I'm sure, who would gladly bear all for the sake of scientific advancement. How liberating it would be if somehow, somewhere, in the terraces and tenements of time, we could check in and out of a transient, encapsulated world where experiences are rented by the hour. This, of course, was very much the theme of The Matrix, humans inhabiting a virtual world, which appeared at the time compulsively, compellingly real. But what of the flip side? What of computers inhabiting a world that is human? 
In the late 1970s, the political scientist Robert Axelrod asked exactly this question in relation to the prisoner's dilemma and hit upon a method of digitizing the paradigm, of determining a strategy over time and repeated interaction that ticked all the boxes of evolutionary stability. He sequenced the genome of everyday social exchange. First, Axelrod approached a number of the world's leading game theorists about the idea of holding a prisoner's dilemma tournament in which the sole participants were computer programs. Second, he urged each theorist to submit a program to take part in the tournament that embodied a set, pre-specified strategy of cooperative and competitive responses. Third, once all the submissions had been received, there were 14 of them in all, he set up a preliminary round prior to the commencement of the contest's main event in which each of the programs competed against the others for points. At the conclusion of this round, he added up the number of points that each program had accrued and then kicked off the tournament proper with the proportion of programs represented corresponding to the number of points that each had amassed in the preceding round, precisely in line with the strictures of natural selection. Then he sat back and watched what happened. What happened was pretty straightforward. The most successful program by far was also by far the simplest. Tit for Tat, designed by the Russian-born mathematician and biologist Anatol Rapoport, whose pioneering work on social interaction and general systems theory has been applied to issues of conflict resolution and disarmament on the world stage, did exactly what it said on the label. It began by cooperating, and then it exactly mirrored its competitor's last response. If, on trial one, for example, that competitor also cooperated, then tit-for-tat would continue to follow suit. If, on the other hand, the rival program competed, then on subsequent trials it got a taste of its own medicine, until such time as it switched to cooperation. The graceful practicality and resilient elegance of tit-for-tat soon became apparent. It didn't take a genius to see what it was up to. It embodied spookily, soullessly, in the absence of tissues and synapses, those fundamental attributes of gratitude anger, and forgiveness that make us, us humans, who we are. It rewarded cooperation with cooperation, and then reaped the collective benefits. It took out immediate sanctions against incipient competition, so avoiding the reputation of being a soft touch. And in the aftermath of such rancor, it was able to return with zero recrimination to a pattern of mutual backscratching nipping in the bud any inherent potential for protracted, destructive, retrospective bouts of sniping. Group selection, the accepted evolutionary standard that that which is good for the group is preserved in the individual, didn't come into it. If Axelrod's experiment showed us anything at all, it was this. Altruism, though undoubtedly an ingredient of basic group cohesion, is perfectly capable of arising not out of some higher-order differential such as the good of the species or even the good of the tribe, but out of a survival differential existing purely between individuals. 
Macroscopic harmony and microscopic individualism were, it emerged, two sides of the same evolutionary coin. The mystics had missed the point. Giving wasn't better than receiving. The truth, according to Robert Axelrod's radical new gospel of social informatics, was that giving was receiving. And what was more, there was no known antidote. Unlike our earlier example of the saints and the shysters, in which a tipping point kicked in once the high end of the population seesaw assumed a certain level of ascendancy, tit-for-tat just kept on rolling. It was able, over time, to sweep all competing strategies off the field permanently. Tit-for-tat wasn't just a winner. Winning was just for starters. Once it got going, it was pretty much invincible. Best of Both Worlds Axelrod's adventures in the world of cybernetics certainly raised a few eyebrows, not just among biologists, but in philosophical circles, too. To demonstrate so convincingly that goodness was somehow inherent to the natural order, that it was an emergent property, as it were, of social interaction, succeeded only in driving an even bigger wedge between those on the side of God and those who put God to one side. What if our better nature wasn't better after all, but was instead, well, just nature? Such an abomination had already occurred, a decade or so prior to Axelrod's endeavors, to a young Harvard biologist by the name of Robert Trivers, who somewhat presciently had speculated that perhaps it was for precisely this reason that certain human attributes had evolved in the first place, to spray paint on the side of consciousness an effective affirmation of such a brilliantly simple blueprint, such a neat mathematical mantra as tit-for-tat, a mantra that had undoubtedly served its apprenticeship in the ranks of the lower animals before we got our hands on it. Perhaps, Trivers mused, it was for this very reason that we experienced, for the first time, in the depths of our evolutionary history, those initial flushes of friendship and enmity, of affection and dislike, of trust and betrayal, that now, millions of years on, make us who we are. The 17th-century British philosopher Thomas Hobbes would almost certainly have approved. Some three hundred years earlier, in Leviathan, Hobbes had anticipated precisely such a notion with his concept of force and fraud, the idea that violence and cunning constitute the primary, indeed the sole, instigators of outcomes, and that the only analgesic for continual fear and the danger of violent death and the life of man, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short, is to be found in the sanctuary of agreement the formation of alliances with others. To be sure, the conditions of Axelrod's tournament certainly reflected those of human and prehuman evolution. Several dozen regularly interacting individuals was just about the right number as far as early communities went. Similarly, each program was endowed with the capacity not only to remember previous encounters, but also to adjust its behavior accordingly. So it was an intriguing notion, this theory of moral evolution. In fact, it was more than that. 
Given what had initially gone into Axelrod's mathematical sausage machine and what had come out the other end, it was an eminent possibility. Survival of the fittest now appeared not, as had been previously thought, to reward competition indiscriminately, but rather to reward it discerningly. Under certain sets of circumstances, yes, aggression might open doors, one thinks of Jim and Buzz, but under others, in contrast, it might just as easily close them, as we saw with the saints and the shysters. So the psychopaths, it transpires, have got it only half right. There's no denying the harshness of existence, the brutal, sawn-off truth that it can, at times, be survival of the fittest out there. But this is not to say that it has to be that way. The meek, it turns out, really do inherit the earth. It's just that along the way there are always going to be casualties. Do unto others has always been sound advice. But now, some two thousand years later, thanks to Robert Axelrod and Anatole Rappaport, we've finally got the math to prove it. Of course, that there's a bit of the psychopath in all of us, a spectral biological fugitive from the math of peace and love, is beyond doubt, as it is that our overlords from the Bureau of Natural Selection have granted psychopaths ongoing evolutionary asylum down the years. Sure, the moral of the saints and the shysters might be set in Darwinian stone. If everyone floors it, there will eventually be nobody left. But equally, there are times during the course of our everyday lives when we need to pump the gas, when we all rationally, legitimately, and in the interests of self-preservation need to calmly put our foot down. Let's return to Axelrod's virtual bun fight one last time. The reason that tit-for-tat rose to the top of the heap in such remorseless, unstoppable fashion was because beneath the smiley exterior lurked a hidden inner steel. When the situation demanded it, it wasn't in the least bit squeamish about putting its silicon foot on its rival's neck, quite the reverse, in fact. It evened the score as soon as the opportunity presented itself. The secret of tit-for-tat success lay as much in its ruthless dark side as it did in its default sunny side in the fact that when the going got tough, it was able to step up to the plate and mix it with the best of them. The conclusions are as clear as perhaps they are unnerving. Tit-for-tat's blueprint for success certainly has psychopathic elements to it. There's the surface charm on the one hand, and the ruthless quest for vengeance on the other. Then, of course, there's the nerveless self-assurance to return to normal as if nothing had ever happened. The program is no Aryan Brotherhood, that's for sure, but between the switches and the soulless synaptic twitches lurk echoes of their creed. Speak softly and carry a big stick, goes the phrase. Good advice, if you want to get ahead, in both the virtual and the real worlds. Which is why, to return to our question of earlier, psychopaths still walk the earth and haven't sunk without trace beneath the deadly Darwinian currents that terrorize the gene pool. There will always be a need for risk-takers in society, as there will for rule-breakers and heartbreakers. If there weren't, ten-year-old boys would be falling into ponds and drowning all over the place. And who knows what would happen at sea? 
If first mate Francis Rhodes and able seaman Alexander Holmes hadn't dredged up the courage to set about doing the unthinkable, one wonders if there would have been any survivors of that fateful night in 1841, 250 miles off the Arctic coast of Newfoundland in the raging North Atlantic. Chapter 4 The Wisdom of Psychopaths just because I don't care doesn't mean I don't understand. Homer Simpson New Year Resolution My oldest friend is a psychopath. We go all the way back to nursery school. I remember one of the teachers taking me over to the sandbox and introducing me to this blonde, roly-poly kid who was playing with one of those puzzles where you have to insert the right shape into the right hole. Anyway, I picked up a star and tried to shove it through the hole that, with the benefit of hindsight, I can now clearly see was most definitely intended for the parrot. It wouldn't fit. Worse, it got stuck. Johnny spent twenty seconds or so, an eternity in the life of a five-year-old, calmly working it free, and then he poked me in the eye with the damn thing. That callous, unprovoked, and frankly downright juvenile attack pretty much marked the high point of our friendship. Fast forward ten years or so, and Johnny and I are in high school together. It's recess, and he comes over to me and asks if he can borrow my history paper. He's left his at home, and guess which class is next. Don't worry, says Johnny. There'll be no way of telling. I'll make it look completely different. I hand him the paper and catch up with him again at the beginning of class. You got my paper, Johnny? I whisper. Johnny shakes his head. Sorry, he says. No can do. I start to panic. This particular teacher isn't the kind you mess with. No paper would mean no grade, plus detention. What do you mean, no can do? I hiss. Where is it? Calm as you like, as if he's narrating a bedtime story, Johnny spills the beans. Well, Kev, it's like this, he explains. You see, I didn't have time to rewrite it, like I'd said so I copied it out verbatim. But, I shriek as the teacher, who's not exactly noted for his people skills, stomps into the classroom. That doesn't explain where mine is, does it? Johnny looks at me as if I'm utterly insane. Well, we couldn't both hand in the same piece of work, could we? He says. No, I exclaim, clearly still not getting it. We couldn't. So where the hell's my paper? Johnny shrugs and takes out his work for collection. It's in the trash, he says casually, behind the music building. Instinctively, I spring out of my chair. Maybe there's time to retrieve it before the class kicks off. You asshole, I snarl under my breath. I'm going to fucking kill you. Johnny grabs my arm and yanks me back down by the sleeve. Look, he says with a concerned, paternalistic smile, gesturing over at the window. It's pissing rain out there, and you're going to get soaked. You don't want to ruin your chances of breaking that school mile record next week by coming down with something, do you? There's not a hint of irony in Johnny's tone. I've known him long enough to realize that, actually, he genuinely believes he's looking out for me. He really does think he's got my best interests at heart. Infuriatingly, in this instance, I have to agree with him. The bastard's got a point. 
The record has stood since the early 60s, and the training's been going well. Shame to ruin all the hard work by doing something stupid at the last minute. I slumped back down in my seat, resigned to my fate. Good man, says Johnny. After all, it's only a paper. Life's too short. I'm not listening. Already I'm trying to come up with a plausible explanation as to why I don't have the piece to hand in, and how, if the rain damage isn't too extensive, I can dry it out, or, failing that, copy it out and submit it later. I don't have long to engineer my cover story. The Grim Reaper is already on his rounds, and is now only a couple of rows in front of us, a sententious pile of crap on the Franco-Prussian War burning a fulsome little hole in his clutches. Johnny scoops up his contribution and casts an admiring eye over it. Then he pats me on the back and, glancing out the window, screws up his face at the rain. Besides, he adds, you'd have been too late anyway, Kev. I guess I should qualify what I just said. What's left of it is in the trash. Actually, I burned it, mate. You may be wondering why on earth I've remained friends with Johnny all these years. Sometimes, in my more reflective moments, I wonder the same thing myself. But don't forget that Johnny is a psychopath. And as we know, they often have saving graces. One of Johnny's is his uncanny ability to turn virtually any situation to his own advantage, not uncommon among highly intelligent psychopaths. He is, without a doubt, one of the most persuasive people I've ever known, and I include in that brotherhood a number of the world's top con artists. Not only that, but he is, I guess you could say, a persuasion prodigy. When we were about five or six, Johnny's folks had to attend a funeral in Canada. Johnny stayed behind and spent New Year's Eve at my house. It got to around nine o'clock, and my parents started dropping hints that it was time to go to bed. Hints like, it's time to go to bed. Like any self-respecting six-year-old, I didn't take it lying down. But Mom, I whined, Johnny and I want to stay up until midnight, please. She wasn't having any of it. But this, needless to say, didn't stop me from coming up with a veritable catalog of mitigating circumstances, ranging from the fact that all our friends were allowed to stay up late at New Year's, original, huh, to the rather profound observation that the New Year does, indeed, only come round once a year. Johnny, however, remained conspicuous by his silence. He just sat there, as I recall, listening to the drama play out, taking it all in like some top-city defense lawyer waiting for his moment to pounce. Finally, Mum had had enough. Come on, she said, that's it. You know what you're like when you stay up late. You get cranky and irritable, and the next day you don't get out of bed until noon. Reluctantly, despondently, and with a creeping sense of end-stage resignation, I looked across at Johnny. The game was up. It was time to say good night. But no one had bargained for what happened next. With perfect timing, just as I was about to throw in the towel and start heading upstairs, Johnny broke his silence. But, Mrs. Dutton, he said, you don't want us running around at the crack of dawn tomorrow morning while you're lying in bed with a headache, do you? We went to bed at three. Context of white supremacy. 
Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. That was our first audio segment, Kevin Dutton, The Wisdom of Psychopaths. Uh, we will be picking up the next session. The next section uh, It's subtitled The Dark Triad and James Bond Psychology. That's what we're picking up at uh, subsection. We're in Chapter 4, kind of the very, very uh, early part of Chapter 4, but that's for uh, the second audio segment. Uh, if you have commentary that you would like to share, the number to dial 641-715-3640. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Number again, 641-715-3640. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. If you want to join the discussion, but you don't want to use your phone, you can use the free Vope line. It is connected at Black Talk Radio Network. Uh, if you need the address, it is tiny, T-I-N-Y dot C-C forward slash one race. And that is the number one. Uh, that address again, tiny, T-I-N-Y dot C-C forward slash one race. And that is the number one. When you put that address in, look on the left of the page. You'll see the free Vope line. Click the link. Uh, it will open a small window on your screen. The first line is a drop down menu. Select the number that I just gave out, which again is 641-715-3640. The next line, it will ask for the code. Put in the same code I just gave, which again is 564-943. Final line, it will ask for a name. You can type uh, random keys. You can put in your real name. You can put in a nickname, whatever you're comfortable with. Once you get all that information entered, click the green button at the bottom. It will connect you to the broadcast, and you should be able to hear us live. It is the same procedure. If you would like to participate, press star six one on the dial pad. It will raise your hand. Uh, I will see you on the line, and we will bring you into the discussion. Uh, we are about halfway through the book, or we certainly will be by the time we finish the second audio segment. So uh, we probably have about another three of these sessions to go for Mr. Kevin Dutton. Hopefully folks getting something constructive out of the reading. Uh, with that, folks who dialed in, if you have a hand up, you have commentary uh, you would like to share, lines should be open. Proceed. Let's see, the folks that have hands up, uh, do y'all have commentary? Y'all just hanging out, spectating? Oh, I, I do have commentary. I'm just trying to get some things together first before I do speak. So I do have commentary. Just give me a moment, okay? For sure. Appreciate that, right, Roz. 
other folks that have hands up? Do you all have commentary, spectating? Yes, can I be here? Yes, sir. Okay, greetings, Master. Greetings, guys, other callers. I have something to contribute. I, I find the book uh, uh, very constructive. Your audio is a little uh, distorted. We can hear you, but it's not not too clear. Okay, let me uh, let me do some. Let me see. Is that any better? Uh, give us another sentence. Okay. You still there, Mr. Demi Four? He's getting his head uh, headset together. Uh, while Mr. Demery Four is getting his headset together, if other folks have commentary, number again, 641-715-3640, code 564-943-POUND, if you're dialing in via the phone. Uh, okay. Yeah. Can I be heard now? Oh, go ahead, Mr. Demery. I'll go after you. Thank you. Okay. No, I, I, okay. Well, mine will be quick. I just had a couple of things. I just want to uh, say that it's, I'm starting to look at uh, psychopaths a little different, but uh, I don't know if I buy everything. Uh, it seems to be uh, justifying uh, some of the psychopathic behavior, but because, uh, uh, you know, we all know that psychopaths got a lack of remorse <clears throat> and, uh, they don't really feel things the way that others do. And I was just thinking about this, uh, the plea or no plea, you know, because uh, none of white people find themselves in positions like that, you know, with the uh, law enforcement agency where um, they're trying to play one against the other and get, see, it said that the, the chief had did not have enough evidence to press charges. So if it's two individuals, you don't have enough evidence to press charges, then both could hold out, you know, just saying, you know, not confessing. But if you, if you know you got a friend and he's a psychopath, you know, what are your chances of holding out? He could just go ahead and sail you down the river and then walk away and have no feeling about you going in a pen for 10 years. So it would behoove a person, if you knew a psychopath, is to not get too involved with it unless you are exactly the same. You know, which brings up uh, why would, you know, at the end of the reading, why would he be friends with, with Johnny? so long, knowing that Johnny was a sociopath, you know, he had to be somewhat like on Johnny. And that Aryan 
Brotherhood that's in the federal uh, penitentiary system. Um, um, the blood in and blood out. You know, what I have to say about that is that uh, at the end, that ruthless dedication to the task, you know, that is uh, indicative of uh, the white collective. Um, just like they have the Aryan Brotherhood, they have uh, uh, black uh, groups too. But, you know, it's probably as true that there's, you know, some um, more ruthless dedication on the uh, part of those Aryan Brotherhoods. And um, the Saints and the Shysters, uh, one thing about that is that uh, you got the Saints going to work, you got the Shysters out there, you know, living off of the Saints, people that go to work. Uh, what? How can the Saints combat themselves against the Shysters? How can the Shysters, you know, keep uh, mistreating and profiting from the saint, you know, the bottom line is that both uh, can be trumped by invading or mutating counter strategies. And I think that, you know, we can look at our situation, you know, as non-white people in this uh, racist white supremacy system. In that way, we have to constantly be coming up with counter strategies you know, to this, because that is exactly the situation that we're in. And uh, I'll leave my line. I got a couple more things, but I'll get it in later. Thanks, God. Indeed. Uh, other folks who dialed in with a hand up? Yeah. Greetings to you, guys, and um, to all the callers, and Mr. Demi as well. Uh, peace to you, too. Um, great observations as well. Um, I wanted to start on page 81 um, where he's speaking about the Aryan Brotherhood. He says the Aryan Brotherhood, also known as the Rock, is one of the most feared gangs ever to emerge within the U.S. penitentiary system, responsible, according to FBI figures, for 21% of the murders inside U.S. prisons, even though their members account for a mere 1% of the inmates. So to me, that's uh, like a, a microcosm of the macrocosm you have this small group that have been allowed because even in prison they're in the system of white supremacy so they're allowed to function with the same reckless abandon and ruthlessness within the prison system to make them the number one group for killing at 21 percent with a mere one percent of them making up the, the prison population across the country i really thought about that also the term the rock sort of dr welton with that the rock is a testicular reference but it's also a phallic reference to a erect penis. So I just thought them calling themselves the rock, and of course rocks don't come in the color white, they're always dark unless they've been bleached by the sun or bleached by um, the, the, the ocean and the sun in combination, they come in color. So again, I just thought of Dr. Wilson with that. Further down, uh, he writes, brutally elite, the rock is the special forces of the prison world, founded in Founded in California, San Quentin Supermax, high security facility in 1964 by a group of white supremacists, the Brotherhood was numerically smaller than the other prison gangs, but within a matter of just a few blood-spattered months, has skyrocketed to the top dog status. 
How did they manage it? Well, it doesn't hurt to be smart, that's for sure. Of course, pra- praising the psychopaths, because he's one too, despite the fact that many gang members were incarcerated in other Supermax units, often under conditions of 23-hour lockdown, they managed to coordinate their activities through a number of ingenious methods. Of course, praising them again, invisible ink made from urine and 400-year-old and a 400-year-old binary code system devised by the Renaissance philosopher Sir Francis Bacon, no less, being a couple of noted examples. I just found another Dr. Wilson reference making invisible ink from their urine, um, the same way dogs use their urine to assert their dominance on other dogs. Sometimes they'll pee on other dogs um, or defecate on them to assert their dominance. They've developed a system of communication using uh, body weight. So again, white psychomachinations apply to uh, refined white supremacy in the prison industrial complex context. And um, on page 83, he writes, here's Dean Peterson, an ex-Special Forces soldier turned martial arts instructor. Sometimes when you're in a hostile situation, your best option is to match the aggressive intentions of a potentially violent individual and then go one step beyond them, raise them, in other words, to use a poker analogy. Only then, once you've gained the psychological ascendancy shown them, hinted who's boss, then you can begin to talk them down. How better to assert your authority than by convincing prospective challengers that they are beaten before they start? That, to me, is the linchpin in how we got dominated in the beginning. They did such brutal things, such heinous things, that we never saw any hominid do to another hominid, that it was just a shock to the psyche. And once they, they, they used that to convince us that we were beaten before we started. And I think once they had us in that particular place, they were able to set this system in a way that it's just, it's just been a self-fulfilling prophecy as far as what we're living in today. Um, and the whole idea of, of uh, raising them, that is something that I've seen in the system all the time. That's something I've seen just as a black male in the streets of Brooklyn. We, we applied that same strategy. So, again, it ties into, in the streets I'm speaking of, it ties into how we adopt their mannerisms and we believe it's our own, but this, the history of this stuff isn't ours. And um, weirdly enough, another good book that speaks on the violence that black people perpetuate on each other and its origins in white supremacist culture is um, All God's Children by Fox Butterfield. It was recommended by Dr. Joy Degree. Um, just to pick up, page 84, he writes, ruthlessness, fearlessness, pervasiveness, charm, a deadly combination, yet also at times a life-saving one. Have the killers of today enjoyed a sneaky evolutionary piggyback on the prowess of yesteryear's peacemakers? It may not be beyond the bounds of possibility, though violence, of course, isn't exactly new. Now, when he's speaking, he's speaking as if all people, all human beings, non-white, white doesn't matter. We all function the same way. And we know that that is not historically accurate at all. The, all of the people who function like white people today have been indoctrinated into that psychosocial conditioning through the system of white supremacy. So even his speech is racist and, and practicing racism because he, he's making a holistic argument for one where there's no historical reality for that. And I think Michael Bradley's Iceman Inheritance um, elucidates that quite, quite well. So I just wanted to point that out. And again, he's praising them again. He's saying these are laudable characteristics that can um, sometimes, sometimes be a life-saving one. So I just wanted to touch on that. Then, ah, here we go. Um, page 88, he writes, the reason, of course, is simple. Life in this in- infinite complexity doesn't go in, go in 
for, excuse me, go in for one-offs. If it did, then the sum total of human existence was an endless succession of ships passing in the night, then yes, the psychopaths among us would indeed be right and would quickly inherit the earth, but it isn't, and they won't. Instead, the screen of life is densely populated with millions upon millions of individual pixels, the repeated interaction of which the relationships between, which gives rise to the bigger picture. We have histories, social histories with each other. We are able, unlike the characters in the prisoner's dilemma, to communicate. What a difference that would, would have made. But that's okay, just as we're able to play the prisoner's, the, the, excuse me, prisoner's, the, prisoner's dilemma the one time so we can play it a number of times over and over, substituting prison terms for a system of reward and punishment which points are won or lost. I found him basically speaking about the system of white supremacy. Um, he's speaking about um, how white people communicate and, and the difference that it makes. The difference that it made is that they now dominate the entire planet and, and, you know, less than 10% of the population, matter of fact, they said 1%, the top 1% owns over 97% of the world's resources. So that's how powerful this system is where these psychopaths, this 10% is able to dominate everyone by making them think that they're making their victims think that they're not psychopathic. Um, when he writes about, uh, he said, we're able to play this dilemma over and over. These are what, this is white people testing different theories on us. They try the prison dilemma and different variants of it over and over, and they're recording this stuff so that they understand how it works in dominating us, and then we don't understand what they're doing to us, so we're always playing catch-up. Rather than being preemptive, we're, playing, we're being reactive. So this book is a treasure trove. There's more, but I don't want to keep talking. I know there's other people that have to speak, but I do have a lot more here. So thank you. I'll meet my line for now. Hopefully I'll get to speak again later. Appreciate that, Roz. Uh, other folks who dialed in, if you have a hand up, if we've not heard from you yet, line should be open. Proceed. Hello, can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Um, from this week's reading, <clears throat> I, I, I did want to say I did like the caller's last point, particularly about the dog and the marking of space or or property with urine or territory. Um, and to, I guess to piggyback off that, well, on that in that same section of the reading where he's talking about the Aryan Brotherhood in prison, I thought that the statistics that he had were, I think he said that, I don't know if it was Aryan Brotherhood members or uh, white people in general, but I think it was the Aryan Brotherhood that they compromised, was it 1% of inmates, but 21% of all the inmate deaths? Um, I'm not sure if I heard that statistic right, but if I did, then that that is a large amount of violence for such an incredibly small population. But I do think that when he says that, like the invisible pee or urine ink that they're using and the usage of the libraries or something, it was, some, it was, it was those collection of statements that he made about them that made them seem like they were very smart people about the way that they practice their white supremacy in prison. But it occurs to me that if there's a lot of racist prison guards in prison. So, I mean, all this invisible pee is surely getting passed without any of those guards blinking an eye. I mean, I'm pretty sure we've all heard of incidents where prisoners are, black prisoners get beat up by the Aryan Brotherhood and nothing happens like for a good 10 minutes until the black people start swinging back. Like there's a lot of racist guards in prison is my point. Um, so them being really genius or them getting a lot of help, I don't know. Um, there was the use of a Sun Tzu quote after that, somewhere in that first reading. And I just, I'm reminded of Stoddard and probably other white supremacist authors sort of uh, that it is called the art of war Sun Tzu's book that I think he is quoting from but um, 
just the usage of, of Asian people and in their warlike statements or their statements about white supremacy and the co-opting of Asian authors or, or statements to sort of uh, seem like to val validate, validate their uh, white supremacist writings is interesting. Um, and then I think I've been experiencing over the past maybe two weeks when we've been reading it, some initial confusion over the way he's using the term psychopath. Like I've been thinking he's using it like I'm using it normally, like evil, crazy person. But I think he's using it more like bold, crazy person who might place very little value in humanity or other people, but might be expedient or really efficient at other activities. And I'm, I'm very suspect on, how, on his attempts to reclaim I'm thinking reclaim and redefine this really reviled term. Like he's, it seems like he's making an effort to not use the terms and make maniac, a lunatic, madman. And I guess my, my thought on that is that insanity is used as a legal safety net for white supremacists in the criminal justice system. So, I mean, maybe it's a shock title for the book, like the wisdom of psychopaths, but his attempts to reclaim that term are, um, it, it's, I guess it's concerning at the very least. Um, that was all my points. Appreciate that, Mel, uh, narrator for our last book and our earlier book when we read uh, Asada Shakur, as well as uh, Crazy Talk, Stupid Talk. Uh, do we have other folks uh, who've not shared yet? If you had commentary you wanted to offer, proceed. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. This is Jason Coleman from New York. Um, hi, Gus, and hi to all the, the callers. Uh, and listeners, uh, I thought the Aryan Brotherhood example uh, was um, was interesting. I mean, these are some of the most outwardly known white supremacists. Uh, the author describes them as a gang of killers, and um, it seemed like he was glorifying them, um, almost affectionately calling them the Rock. And uh, in another instance, uh, celebrating. Uh, the violence uh, that that they were committing with the the statistics, um, that's how it, uh, it came off uh, in the text. Uh, with the confession scenario, the the whole notion of um, better off confessing and that's a statistical um, uh, outcome uh, for the better. Um, it seems to uh, be just this this total um, disregard for morality, but it's. It, it seemed like it was being described a little bit beyond that, where it was, uh, how do I put it? Like it, it was the right thing to do in that situation that anyone would do that, almost like it was not just psychopaths. So I think that uh, gave us uh, some insight maybe onto the author's thinking or the author's approach. Uh, the whole part of the society days gone by with the, the um, the saints and the shysters uh, instantly uh, came to the conclusion that the shysters had to be white people. I couldn't uh, conceptualize them being anything else, and I couldn't conceptualize uh, the saints being anyone else, um, anyone other than uh, black people. Uh, and it seemed like what the author was uh, presenting was kind of like an alternate reality to me. Um, because uh, I, I understood the, the point they was trying to make, but um, it, it, it seemed like the the power dynamic is always the white people being the shysters, and um, but and also that the black people could never really be the saints that he was describing because the pendulum never swings back around our way. 
so it's um, that that was kind of uh, just demonstrating the lens of white supremacy that this um, th this was written with. The uh, let me take a look at my notes. The 17th century uh, philosopher um, uh, who stated that violence is the sole determinant of outcomes. Uh, British philosopher. Uh, that was the heyday of African slave trade, of um, colonization, the continent of Africa. So that was the narrative that was really being pushed um, at, at that time. And uh, so I, I thought that was an interesting reference um, that, that the author made. And with the two school children, uh, that just came off to me as a scary reminder um, that white people are so skillful at being deceptive uh, when it comes to practicing racism, white supremacy, um, that uh, they, it's normal operating system that they can come off as, uh, in this situation, uh, I believe the author describes the, um, the, the boy who was being decept uh, deceptive in that situation is just feeling totally natural and comfortable with it. And, you know, that's, um, that was a reminder that that's, a normal um, way uh, uh, that white people operate when they are practicing white supremacy. Um, that's all I have. I'll go ahead and meet my line. Appreciate that. Caller in New York. Uh, if we have other folks who have commentary, feel free. Number 641-715-3640 and the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, some of the things that uh, stood out that I noted in the first segment that we read when he was describing, I guess, this game where there's a sum of money, it's two people and you, the two are supposed to decide how they're going to split the funds. Uh, and if you expect, uh, if you, the person accepts, then you all split the money and proceed. If you reject, then nobody gets anything. And he said that psychopaths in this game that they tend to do better, he writes specifically, uh, but psychopaths Ohira and Osumi discovered play the game rather differently. Not only do they show greater willingness to accept unfair offers favoring simple economic utility over the exigencies of punishment and ego preservation, they are much less bothered by inequity. Uh, and it goes on to say that they end up doing better, not being easy, as emotional as they play the game and they end up uh, coming out with more money. Uh, as this game goes on, you keep playing and playing and playing. The one point that I thought was uh, important that could be applied with regards to counter racism, uh, getting away from ego preservation. I think a lot of times racists can do that and they can do it in a variety of ways, either trying to pump black people up and black people are kings and queens. They'll go that route and try and do a lot of uh stroking of our ego uh you might say or they'll go the other route uh, and say that you're inferior and you're ignorant lothrop uh stoddard uh type thing or you can take the bell curve to get you really upset get you really angry so that you feel that you have to defend your ego uh that i have some dignity uh on the line here i think the more that we can get away from all of that and just understanding we have enemies and understanding some of their tactics so that we can be logical and how we go about neutralizing them permanently. I think that would behoove us uh, continuing the whole report where he was talking about uh, the prison gang situation and the Aryan brotherhood. I think this is the first and only time in the book thus far that he's used the term white supremacy. 
or anything even remotely close to racism uh, when talking about this group. And uh, he says that U.S. federal, uh, the Aryan Brotherhood is one of the most feared gangs uh, and that they're responsible, according to FBI figures, for 21 percent of murders inside U.S. prisons, that their numbers, their members account for a mere one percent of inmates. Uh, since folks were mentioning that, uh, what he wrote out in the text uh, and uh, saying that they use the swastika and all the other uh, white supremacist paraphernalia uh, as their emblems. I uh, thought it was important for many reasons. Uh, number one, uh, I just continue to get the sense that violent criminals, mass murderers, serial killers, uh, that these people are being glorified. Uh, I felt that the entire way as we've been reading this book, I felt that with Charles Manson, Jeffrey Dahmer, all of the folks uh, that he has talked about thus far, they're not presented as, oh my God, these folks are scoundrels. It's like, oh wow, they're so smart. They're so intelligent. Did you see that they've got this, you know, really uh, efficient coding system so they can transfer all their violent messages about killing and using urine to to have their secret codes. It just seems very consistent. Uh, and that's something that I see with whites in general, uh, where white people, regardless of what they've done, what crimes they've committed, they still can be glorified. They still can be praised. And that just does not happen with black people. In my view, some of these gangsters and criminals and psychopaths, they are talked about as though they are better than President Obama and people that have not committed crimes just happen to be non-white where he's some sort of a scoundrel. I thought the urine thing, it reminded me, I think we've had so many books on the book club where white people using urine, playing with urine. If folks remember all the way back to uh, Chris Kyle, the American sniper, uh, where he was talking about in their training session where they would huddle on the beach and urinate on each other. This would be a group of white people. And he, re he reflected on this fondly. It wasn't, oh man, this is so gross. It was, ah, great training days when we used to pee on each other. Ah, and we had uh, Richard Williams, Venus and Serena's father, uh, where he had the scene, he was in Mississippi during the civil rights movement, 1960s this is before he was, uh, had Serena and Venus and he was supposed to be nonviolent saint as it were and a white psychopath came to urinate on him <laughs> he said there's no way i'm gonna tolerate this this just comes up over and over and over. even madiba i'd forgotten about that when long walk to freedom he talked about how the prisoners when he was an inmate and the white prisoners race soldiers they would come and make it a habit of urinating on he and the other black freedom fighters uh who were in prison incarcerated on robins island i just i think that's something that should not be uh minimized uh certainly uh if you want to relate that dr welsing romulus remus their dog fascination uh even just always something going back to uh phallic symbols uh, and using their phallus uh as a weapon uh, or just the urine aspect of it uh let's see the he said uh, that this gang a part of their mo having this extreme violence so that they would have a reputation and even though it's a small number of us people know that and there's no getting out of this gang uh, if you're going to get out it's blood in blood out that means you're going to die if you're not going to ride with our code anymore i think racist man racist woman racist child they have a similar code uh, i think 
Whites even talk about the whites who have been killed because they didn't want to go along with the racist gang code anymore. Viola Luizzo and uh, Reverend James Reeb. He was both of them actually were depicted in uh, Selma, Ava DuVernay's film. I think that's a similar type of code that they operate with. And it even reminded me when he was uh, giving all of this detail about this prison mob, this prison gang, uh, where he says there are no half measures. And no questions asked. It reminded me of that motto. Violence solves everything. I've heard whites brag about that. And there is a Breaking Bad episode specifically titled Half Measures. Um, and I, we've done whole TV, I mean, whole programs talking about Breaking Bad. I think that is another brilliant illustration of the psychopathy of white culture and how white culture worships violence. That was one of the most popular television programs that was on TV in the last 20 years, 15, 20 years, all about violence. They set a bomb off at a nursing home. Uh, And not only that, but on that show, they would kill people and put their bodies in acid so that they could get away with all these crimes and continue to sell drugs. But that was a whole episode where they have a chilling conversation between two white men, one of them a former police officer, which has been mentioned in this book repeatedly, that psychopaths, one of their popular professions, law enforcement, a law enforcement officer, and a high school teacher, no less, are sitting down and talking about lethal violence, killing people. And he says, I was a police officer. This guy was beating up his girlfriend. I was going to kill him, not arrest him, not let due process be carried out. No, 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 no. I was just going to kill him. And I messed up. I didn't do it. He got out and he eventually killed his girlfriend. He says, the whole point, the reason I'm telling you this anecdote, no more half measures. If you're going to do something, do it all the way. (laughs) They brag about this sort of thing. Like, we're not going to half step. You do something, you do it all the way. If you got to kill 50,000 people, you don't kill 49,999. You kill 50,005 if you have to to make sure you get your point across. That is white culture. Continuing. And even the next page, this whole thing about the prisoners being in prison. And again, they get glorified. They're scholarly. I see this done with whites all the time where they're not just portrayed as ignorant. They still have to be glorified as being intelligent. We're smart. We use our brain computers to dominate. We study Nietzsche and Machiavelli and Hitler. And he says that they would do all this to find body parts of, excuse me, to find the parts of the body most vulnerable to sudden trauma. Again, Dr. Cambon, where he says we're talking about scientific terrorists should be emphasized, not with any reverence uh, for their scholarly work, but wow, the layers of psychopathy. Wow. Continuing uh, where he says, the section, this is after the prisoner talking, what have you. Oh, he mentions Phil Spector. I didn't know who this person was. I'd never heard uh, of Phil Spector, Uh, but the paragraph where he mentions him, he says, uh, Barry's point about conflict resolution is an interesting one and is echoed in not so many words by the incarcerated record producer, Phil Spector. Better to have a gun and not need it. The magnum toting screwball once expounded than to need a gun and not have it though whether he still believes that today is anybody's guess. This guy killed uh, Phil Spector. Uh, He switched uh, from Hollywood to killing 
uh, a female. I think it was his uh, girlfriend. Uh, again, I had to I had to check because uh, I just never heard of this guy before. But yeah, he's apparently in prison now. Uh, he killed her, I think, in the 2000s. I guess this might be one illustration of where he does call him a screwball to Mel's point where most of the time these people are not being called uh, disparaging names. They're kind of talked about in a in a veiled, glorified manner. Uh, let's see. Next. I think the overall tone that I've got from this book thus far, we're about the halfway point as it's continued. And I mean, you get that from the title, but it's presenting, I think, as Mel said, presenting psychopaths not as screwballs not as terrorists not even as you know folks that wow we should be trying to minimize or corral these folks these people are extraordinarily dangerous lethally so it's we can learn a lot from them we should be emulating them we should be trying to pick out some of the traits that they have in fact they are essential for our survival and doing well, uh, where he says there will always be a need for risk takers in society. They're not psychopaths. They're risk takers, as there will for rule breakers and heartbreakers. If there weren't 10 year old boys, wouldn't be falling into ponds and drowning all over the world. And who knows what would happen at sea? And he comes back. That's where he started this uh, this chapter, chapter three. That's where he started at. It was whites on sea who killed a bunch of people because they didn't think they had enough resources to survive. Again, that's not looked at as, oh, my God, we should be trying to avoid that. Hey, utility, that's what you got to do sometimes. If that's what it's going to require, that's what it's going to require. Let's get to killing. Like, wow, that is the mentality of white people. And again, I just think that that gets uh, minimized a lot. I just don't think that we understand uh, when you have people that think like that. And you don't think like that at all. Your thinking on a ship is not, oh, we don't have enough resources. We're going to have to kill half of the crew. <laughs> Your thinking is not like that. You're going to be at an extraordinary disadvantage in almost every situation when you are dealing with these people. And uh, I will stop there, even though I did have uh, one or two more things as well. Uh, did folks that dialed in have any other commentary they wanted to make sure they got in before we get to audio segment number two? Uh, yes, I did actually, and uh, great <laughs> insight, uh, Gus. Um, yeah, I, I said it from the beginning. I thought he was glorifying these um, these beasts, and yeah, it just seems to be a, a repeat performance with each reading. Um, yeah, this section where he talks about the the saints and shysters, where he says eventually. If the fun and games are allowed to play out naturally, the power balance comes full circle. The pendulum swings back in favor of the saints, and society reverts to working for a living. But note how history is programmed to repeat itself. The saints call the shots, but only such a time as the economy is in recession, and and the and the shysters provide, preside, excuse me, but only as long as the saints can keep them afloat. It's a bleak carousel of reoccurring boom and bust. Now, I didn't see the saints as black people. And the shysters as white people, I just saw the saints as um, more refined white people, and I saw the shysters as less refined white people. And the description of the the, the shysters, as far as them being uh, leeches or vampires on the saints, would be the more powerful whites that are uh, making millions of dollars at the expense of the more more uh, lower class whites. And the saints would come into play. When the recession is low, like you said, there'll be these white people who come out and seem to be philanthropic and very um, accommodating to trying to shift things in a different direction, quote unquote. 
and it's just a game between – we're not even in the equation as far as I'm concerned when I look at the Saints and the Shysters. I just see it as more refined and less refined and that um, it's meant to go on in, ad, ad infinitum. The system, the way that they're trying to perpetuate it is to be permanent. So why would we even be in the equation? That, that's my, that was my opinion on the, um, the Saints and the Shysters section. I really saw it as more of that kind of a scenario. Um, the other thing – was on, okay, on page uh, 99 where he says, you may be wondering why on earth I remain friends with Johnny all these years, and sometimes in my more reflective moments, I wonder the same thing myself. But don't forget that Johnny, Johnny is a psychopath, and as we know, they often have saving graces. One of Johnny's is his uncanny ability to turn virtually any situation to his own advantage, not uncommon among the highly intelligent members of his species. He is, without doubt, one of the most persuasive people I've ever known, and I include that in that brotherhood a number of the world's top con artists. Not only that, but he is, I guess you can say, a persuasion prodigy. This is praise for the psychopathic behavior, and I believe that he's friends with him because he's studying him. He's learning how to be a better psychopath from a better psychopath. And that's what we, we, we always talk about on workplace racism with white people studying us, they're studying each other and refining their practice. That's what I see that as. And finally, there was a brief section on the following page um, where we ended off, where he says, um, Johnny, however, remained conspicuous by his silence. He just sat there, I recall, listening to the drama play out, taking it all in like a top city defense lawyer waiting for his moment to pounce. That's white supremacy. That's how it functions. It elucidates what I just said five seconds ago, and this is how they treat us all the time. When you work with them, whatever you do with them, be aware that they are watching you, they're studying you, and they're trying to devise ways of either learning more about you or learning better ways of dominate, dominating you immediately. Thank you. I'll meet my line. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have any other folks who had a hand up, who had commentary that they wanted to share, anybody that we missed? Yes, sir. Hey, uh, greetings to the uh, <clears throat> callers and the listeners. Greetings to the hosts. Uh, this is uh, Rob and Wisconsin. Uh, very quickly, um, I thought it was very interesting when he compared um, the psychopaths and or just the people in general to uh, monkeys, the chimpanzees, chimpanzees and gorillas um, as much as uh, black people uh, get uh, uh, compared to monkeys. I thought it was very interesting that a person that's classified as white uh, compared themselves uh, to monkeys. Uh, thank you. That's all I have for right now. Lots of that in this uh, year book. Uh, and I think even we talked about that before. I think Dr. Welsing and others have as well, that sometimes uh, racists, they seem more comfortable uh, aligning their alleged evolution with monkeys than with black people. Um, the I did want to also make sure I got in just on Phil Spector because he didn't really include uh, much information about who this guy was. This guy got inducted into the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh, Phil Spector, I'm talking about, where he read the uh, quote from him where he said, it's better to have the gun and not need it than to need it uh, and not have it. Uh, like I said, this guy got uh, he got inducted into the Hall of Fame. Uh, he worked with uh, Tina Turner, really, really popular 
uh, record producer for a long number uh, of years. Uh, his He's got albums on the top 500 all times. Uh, the Washington Times named Spectre the second greatest record producer in music history. Uh, and then you get down to his conviction for murder. It says on February 3rd, 2003, actress Lena Clarkson died in Spectre's mansion in Alhambra, California. Her body was found slumped in a chair with a single gunshot wound to her mouth with broken teeth scattered over the carpet. Spectre told Esquire magazine in July 2003 that Clarkson's death was an accidental suicide and that she kissed the gun. The emergency call from Spectre's home made by Spectre's driver, uh, Adriano D'Souza, quotes Spectre as saying, I think I've killed someone. D'Souza added that he saw Spectre come out of the back door of the house with a gun in his hand. It took nearly six years for him to be convicted. Uh, He was not convicted until... 2009 all those the shooting happened in 2003 that tends to be psychopaths as well justice is not something quick where they're going to be going to jail he got to hang out was out on i think it says a million dollars bail uh while he was waiting trial still being psychotic i'm sure uh we have other folks who had any final comments we want to get in before we get to audio segment number two Oh yeah, Gus, Mr. Phil Spector. I'm very familiar with him. I even saw a documentary about um what happened with him. And he he was a gun aficionado. He was known to have like shot at people and all kinds of stuff. So he had a history of being very, very reckless with the gun, but he was also a very good shot. So that 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 whole thing with where he shot the woman in the mouth, I believe they were having an argument. And I think it was his way of just shutting her up by shooting her in the face. Um, so, yeah, I'm very familiar with Phil Spector. As soon as he said it, I said, oh, man, that is that is one psychopathic guy. And you just um, put his history out as far as him being considered, you know, the second greatest record producer and stuff. And he was a psychopathic, racist, white supremacist. <laughs> I'll mute my line. Mm, 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 mm. He even has some gospel hits in here. Worked with the Beatles as well. Incredible. Uh, any any Anything else folks wanted to make sure they get in? I wanted to make one last comment. Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, I'm glad you talked about Phil Spector because I was reading that and it's like, I'm thinking Richard Pryor was the first one that says better to have it and not need it than to need it and not have it. He just put the gun part in there and maybe Phil Spector could be responsible for that. But, um important thing was when he was talking to the uh, former, I guess, um, uh, special forces guy, and he was saying that to match the aggressive intentions of a potential violent individual and then go one step beyond it and raise it, which is a poker term, uh, to psychological ascendancy, showing them who's boss and and that way you can talk them down after that but I think that that's one of the strategies of these races to uh, actually meet uh, excessive force with any violence you know towards them and one last thing was oh the mathematical formula for figuring out the chances on playing chicken with cars. Um, I thought about uh, uh, 
uh, Mr. Neely Fuller saying that they will study things and even go to the bottom of the ocean and study a grain of sand at the bottom of the ocean. I'll mute my line. Thanks, God. Absolutely. I would say this text is a great illustration right in sync with with what Mr. Fuller is saying there, because you got we've read half of the book. We've repeatedly got people who are that is what they do. We study how people think about killing folks. We study how people think about murdering. We study all of that. Uh, absolutely uh, study everything in order to maintain domination. And again, I mentioned uh, Bobby E. Wright, Dr. Bobby E. Wright, psychopathic racial personality and other essays at the beginning uh, of this broadcast would definitely recommend people read that book. It is very, very short. It's not even a hundred pages, but it has lots of great information in their essays. So uh, you can, you know, like take five minutes and read one essay, put it down, come back the next day. Take five minutes, read another essay. You can finish it really quick. Uh, But just some of the points, uh, I think it's uh, critical because his book is basically stating exactly what I'm saying is important about this text. It's telling you, it's informing us what it means to be white. What is white culture? This is how individuals classified as white. This is how they think as it relates to black people, uh, where he says, talking about white people saying we can tell because they act in a psychopathic way towards black people being self-centered, a disregard for the rights of black people being violent, unfeeling, almost complete absence of ethic, ethical and moral development, uh, making commitments they do not intend to keep, getting angry when their integrity is called into question, unable to accept blame or learn from experiences, lack of discipline or respect for authority, taking advantage of blacks without any guilt, anxiety, or threat to their self-esteem, unable to love deeply, leading to sexual inadequacy, leading to rape, castration, and hypersexualization of blacks. Uh, he goes on, white behavior towards black go towards blacks goes far beyond anything that can be accounted for in any other way. Uh, just if you if you check out the text, I was going to try to find a video, but again, he passed away way too early, victim of white supremacy. So there are not tons and tons and tons of audio and video uh, of Dr. Wright uh, if he had you know been able to stay with us longer. But he certainly left tremendous scholarship absolutely critical companion read to this text, psychopathic racial personality and other essays. Uh, With that, uh, we'll go ahead and get to audio segment number two, just to make sure that we have ample time uh, for people to share. Uh, Once this segment is done again, we're picking up, we're in chapter four, very early uh, in chapter four, like right at the beginning and the sub uh, section where we're starting is the dark triad and James Bond psychology. That's what we're picking up at. Uh, we will go ahead and get started. Context of white supremacy. We are continuing Mr. Kevin Dutton's The Wisdom of Psychopaths. This is audio segment number two. The Dark Triad and James Bond psychology. John's ability to wheel and deal at life's flipping points, to make the absolute most out of whatever situation he found himself in, eventually stood him in good stead. He joined the Secret Service. It's not just the cream that rises to the top, Kev, he would say. It's the scum, too. And you know what? I'm both. Depends on what takes my fancy. It's difficult to fault such coruscating insight. Of course, the fact that Johnny went and got a job with MI5, the British equivalent of the FBI, 
didn't surprise any of us. And whatever it is that he does for them, he is, by all accounts, pretty good at it. Such is his coolness, charisma, and demonic power of persuasion, one of his colleagues once told me at a party that even if he had a telephone cord wrapped around your neck, he'd be charming the bloody pants off you. He'd strangle you with his own halo, the guy said, and then put it back on as if nothing had ever happened. I didn't need any convincing. If Johnny is starting to remind you a little bit of James Bond, it's no coincidence. It's easy to imagine how that other notable employee of Her Majesty's Secret Service might also be a psychopath. How the shadowy world of spooks, counter-surveillance, and espionage might well be wall-to-wall -wall with sub-radar serial killers, with a license to kill rather than some deep, unfathomable compulsion. And how were the Walter PPK packing secret agent that we all know and love to swap that PPK for a copy of the PPI, he might be pretty high on the spectrum. But is there any basis behind such speculation? Buying into the stereotype is one thing, seeing how the fantasy plays out in reality quite another. Is it pure, unadulterated chance that Johnny is a psychopath? and just so happens to work in the field of military intelligence? One man who asked these questions and then set about finding the answers is psychologist Peter Jonathan. Back in 2010, Jonathan, then at New Mexico State University, and his colleagues published a paper titled Who is James Bond? in which they showed that men with a specific triumvirate of personality traits the stratospheric self-esteem of narcissism, the fearlessness, ruthlessness, impulsivity, and thrill-seeking of psychopathy, and the deceitfulness and exploitativeness of Machiavellianism can actually do pretty well for themselves out there in certain echelons of society. Not only that, but they're also, in addition, more likely to have a greater number of sexual partners and a stronger inclination toward casual, short-term relationships than men who are low on such traits. Far from the dark triad constituting a handicap when it comes to dealing with the opposite sex, contends Jonathan, it may, in contrast, set female pulses racing. And so, through an enhanced potential for the propagation of genes, it may actually represent a successful reproductive strategy. A cursory peek at the tabloid headlines and gossip column inches will avail you of the fact that the theory may well hold water. A hell of a lot of it, in fact. But one of the best examples of all, according to Jonathan, is James Bond. He's clearly disagreeable, very extrovert, and likes trying new things, he points out, including killing people and new women. Jonathan's study saw 200 college students filling out personality questionnaires specifically designed to assess the presence of dark triad attributes. The students were also asked about their sexual relationships, including their attitudes towards casual affairs and one-night stands. Lo and behold, the standout finding was that those who scored higher on the triad tended to have more notches on their rickety, battle-weary bedposts than those who scored lower, suggesting that elements of the three personality styles, narcissism, Machiavellianism, and psychopathy, 
expedite a dual-process alpha male mating strategy aimed at maximizing reproductive potential. One, impregnate as many females as possible. Two, hit the road before anyone calls you daddy. And it all seems to have worked out rather well down the years. Otherwise, as Jonathan pointed out, why would such attributes still be knocking around? The Business End of the Psychopathic Spectrum Curiously, it's not just in terms of reproduction that psychopaths end up on top. The exploits of evolutionary psychologists such as Peter Jonathan add support to the claims of game theory mandarins like Andrew Coleman, whom we met in the previous chapter, that there are other areas of life, other fields of endeavor, in which it pays to be a psychopath. A psychopathic strategy doesn't just code for greater success in the bedroom, it also comes in handy in the boardroom. A 2005 study conducted by a joint team of psychologists and neuroeconomists from Stanford University, Carnegie Mellon University, and the University of Iowa demonstrates this beautifully. The study took the form of a gambling game consisting of 20 rounds. Participants were divided into three groups, normal people, patients with lesions in the emotion areas of the brain, the amygdala, the orbitofrontal cortex, and the right insular or somatosensory cortex, and patients with lesions in brain regions unrelated to emotion. At the start of the game, each participant was handed the sum of $20, and at the beginning of each new round, they were asked whether they were prepared to risk $1 on the toss of a coin. While a loss incurred the penalty of $1, a win swelled the coffers by a cool two fifty. It doesn't take a genius to work out the winning formula. Logically, says Baba Shiv, professor of marketing at Stanford Graduate School of Business, the right thing to do is to invest in every round. But logic, as the political activist Gloria Steinem once remarked, is often in the eye of the logician. If, as game theory predicts, there are times when it really does pay to keep our foot on the gas and psychopaths have heavier boots, then according to the dynamics of the game, those participants with the relevant presenting pathology, deficits in emotional processing, should clean up. They should outperform those without, that is, both of the other groups. This is exactly how the study panned out. As the game unfolded, participants with normal emotional brain centers, whether or not they had dings elsewhere, began declining the opportunity to gamble, opting instead for the bewilderingly conservative alternative, holding on to their winnings. In contrast, however, those whose brains were not equipped with the everyday emotional seatbelts that most of us keep tightly fastened just kept on rolling ending the game with a significantly higher profit margin than their opposite numbers. This may be the first study, comments George Lowenstein, professor of economics and psychology at Carnegie Mellon, that documents a situation in which people with brain damage make better financial decisions than normal people. Antoine Beccara, now professor of psychology and neuroscience at the University of Southern California, goes one better. Research needs to determine the circumstances in which emotions can be useful or disruptive, in which they can be a guide for human behavior, he points out. 
the most successful stockbrokers might plausibly be termed functional psychopaths, individuals who, on the one hand, are either more adept at controlling their emotions or who, on the other, do not experience them to the same degree of intensity as others. And Baba Shiv agrees. Many CEOs, he adds rather unnervingly, and many top lawyers might also share this trait. A study conducted by the economist Kerry Fridman and his colleagues at the California Institute of Technology lends credibility to Shiv's observations. Fridman handed volunteers a sum of $25 and then presented them with a series of tricky financial dilemmas. Within a short set period, the volunteers had to decide whether to play it safe and accept a sure thing, say receive $2, or whether to gamble and go for a riskier but potentially more lucrative option, a 50-50 chance of gaining $10 or losing 5 for example. Who would clean up, and who would go bust? Far from it being a matter of random chance, it turned out that a subset of volunteers completely outsmarted the rest, making consistently optimal choices under risk. These individuals were not financial whiz kids, nor were they economists, mathematicians, or even World Series poker champions. Instead, they were carriers of the warrior gene, a monoamine oxidase apolymorphism called MAOAL, previously, if controversially, associated with dangerous psychopathic behavior. Contrary to previous discussion in the literature, our results show these behavioral patterns are not necessarily counterproductive, Fridman's team wrote, since in the case of financial choice, these subjects engage in more risky behavior only when it is advantageous to do so. Fridman elucidated further, if two gamblers are counting cards and one is making a lot of bets, he observed, it may look like he's more aggressive or impulsive, but you don't know what cards he's counting. He may just be responding to good opportunities. Additional support comes from work carried out by Bob Hare and his colleagues in 2010. Hare handed out the PCLR to more than 200 top U.S. business executives and compared the prevalence of psychopathic traits in the corporate world to that found in the general population at large. Not only did the business execs come out ahead, but psychopathy was positively associated with in-house ratings of charisma and presentation style, creativity, good strategic thinking, and excellent communication skills. Then, of course, there was the survey conducted by Belinda Board and Katerina Fritzen that we discussed in Chapter 1. Board and Fritzen pitted company CEOs against the inmates of Broadmoor Hospital, a high-security forensic institution in the U.K., which we'll be getting into, quite literally, in more detail later on, on a psychological profiling test. Once again, when it came to psychopathic attributes, the CEOs emerged victorious, which, considering that Broadmoor houses some of Britain's most dangerous criminals, is really going some. I put it to hair that in recent years the corporate environment, with its downsizing, restructuring, mergers, and acquisitions, has actually become even more of a hothouse for psychopaths. Just as political turmoil and uncertainty can make for a pretty good petri dish in which to cultivate psychopathy, 
So too, I opined, can the high seas of trade and industry. He nodded. I've always maintained that if I wasn't studying psychopaths in prison, I'd do so at the stock exchange, he enthused. Without doubt, there are more psychopathic big hitters in the corporate world than there are in the general population. You'll find them in any organization where your position and status afford you power and control over others and the chance of material gain. His co-author on the corporate psychopathy paper, New York industrial and organizational psychologist Paul Babiak, agrees. The psychopath has no difficulty dealing with the consequences of rapid change. In fact, he or she thrives on it, he explains. Organizational chaos provides both the necessary stimulation for psychopathic thrill-seeking and sufficient cover for psychopathic manipulation and abusive behavior. Ironically, the rule-bending, risk-taking, thrill-seeking individuals who were responsible for tipping the world economy over the edge are precisely the same personalities who will come to the fore in the wreckage. Just like Frank Abagnale, they are the mice who fall into the cream, fight and fight and churn that cream into butter. Champagne on Ice Babiak and Hare's pronouncements, like Bord and Fritzen's, demographic and sociological in nature, provide plenty of food for thought, and when placed alongside more empirically derived observations, the fiscal fandangos of neuroeconomists such as Baba Shiv and his co-authors, the coital correlations of dark triad hunter Peter Jonathan, and the mathematical machinations of game theorists like Andrew Coleman, for example, they show beyond doubt that there's most definitely a place for the psychopath in society. This explains, in part, why psychopaths are still around the inexorable perseverance of their dark, immutable gene streams, and why the evolutionary share price in this niche personality consortium has remained stable and buoyant over time. There are positions in society, jobs and roles to fill, which, by their competitive, cutthroat, or chillingly coercive natures, require access to office space in precisely the kind of psychological real estate that psychopaths have the keys to, that they have on offer in their glossy neural portfolios. Given that such roles, predominantly by virtue of their inherent stress and danger, often confer great wealth, status, and prestige on the individuals who assume them, and that, as Peter Jonathan showed us, bad boys seem to have a way with certain girls, it's really not surprising that the genes have hung about. Biologically, you might say they punch above their weight. Of course, similar charisma and coolness under pressure can also be found among those who take advantage of society, such as the world's top con artists. And when combined with a genius for deception, this jaw-dropping profile can be devastating. Take Philip Morant. Morant is one of America's most successful and elusive con men. And when it comes to psychopaths, among the top five most charming and the top five most ruthless I've ever had the pleasure of meeting. I caught up with him in the bar of a five-star hotel in New Orleans. It was only after he bought the drinks, a bottle of Cristal champagne for $400, that he gave me back my wallet. One of the most important things that a grifter must have in his possession is a good, 
vulnerability radar, Morant illuminated, in a comment reminiscent of the work of psychologist Angela Book. If you recall from Chapter 1, Book found that psychopaths were better than non-psychopaths at discerning the victims of a previous violent assault simply from the way they walked. Most folk you come across pay no attention to what they say when they're talking to you. Once out, the words are gone. But a grifter will zone in on everything. Like therapy, you're trying to get inside the person, figure out who they are from the little things. And it's always the little things. The devil's in the detail. You get them to open up, usually by telling them something about yourself first. A good grifter always has a narrative. And then immediately change the subject, randomly, abruptly. It can be anything. Some thought that just occurred to you out of the blue or whatever. Anything to interrupt the flow of conversation. Nine times out of ten, the person will completely forget what they've just said. Then you can get to work. Not right away. You need to be patient. But a month or two later, you modify whatever it is, whatever the hell they've told you. You tend to know instantly where the pressure points are, and then tell the story back as if it were your own. Bam! From that point on, you can pretty much take what you want. I'll give you an example. One guy is rich, successful, works like a dog. When he's a kid, he comes home from school to find his record collection gone. His pop's a bum and has sold it to stock up his liquor cabinet. He's been collecting those records for years. So wait, I think. You're telling me this after, what, three or four hours in a bar? There's something going down. Then I get it. So that's why you work so goddamned hard, I think. It's because of your pappy. You're scared. Your life's been on hold all these years. You're not a CEO. You're that scared little kid. The one who's going to come home from school one day and find your record collection is history. Jesus, I think. That's hilarious. So guess what? A couple of weeks later, I tell him what happened to me. How I get home from work one night and find my wife in bed with the boss. How she files for divorce and cleans me out. Morant pauses and pours us some more champagne. Total bullshit, he laughs. But you know what? I did that guy a favor. Put him out of his misery. What do they say? The best way to overcome your fears is to confront them? Well, someone had to be daddy. Morant's words are chilling. Even more so when you hear them firsthand, at close quarters. I distinctly remember our meeting in New Orleans and how I felt at the time. Violated, but captivated. Enthralled, but creeped out much like the clinicians and law enforcement agents that Reed Malloy interviewed back in Chapter 1. Despite the style and the millionaire yachtsman vibe, I was under precious few illusions as to the kind of man I was dealing with. Here, in all his glory, was a psychopath, a predatory social chameleon, as the champagne flowed and the slow southern twilight glinted off his Rolex he would colonize your brain synapse by synapse without even breaking a sweat and without you even knowing. And yet, as a psychologist, I saw the simple, ruthless genius in what Morant was saying. His modus operandi adheres to strict scientific principles. Research shows that one of the best ways of getting someone to tell you about themselves is to tell them something about yourself. 
Self-disclosure meets reciprocity. Research also shows that if you want to stop someone from remembering something, the key is to use distraction, and above all, to use it fast. In clinical psychology, there comes a point in virtually every therapeutic intervention where the therapist strikes gold, uncovers a time, a defining moment or incident that either precipitates the underlying problem or encapsulates it, or both. And this doesn't just apply to dysfunction. Core personality structures, interpersonal styles, personal values, all of these things are often best revealed in the small print of people's lives. Whenever you interview someone, you're always on the lookout for the seemingly inconsequential, says Stephen Joseph, professor of psychology, health, and social care at the Center for Trauma, Resilience, and Growth at the University of Nottingham. The flare-up in the office ten years ago with Brian from Accounts, the time when the teacher said you were late and couldn't join in, or when you did all the work and what's-his-face took the credit. You're looking for needles, not haystacks. The shrapnel of life trapped deep within the brain. What was that about you doing all the work and someone else taking the credit? Surely not. The Truth About Lying Con artist and secret agent are two sides of the same coin, if the views of one of the UK's senior homeland security figures that I spoke to are anything to go by. Both, she pointed out, rely on the ability to pass oneself off as something one is not, the facility to think on one's feet, and the capacity to navigate webs of deception with alacrity. I'd be surprised if A.L. Aharoni would disagree. In 2011, Aharoni, a psychology postdoc at the University of New Mexico, asked a question that, hard though it is to believe, no one had asked before. If, under certain conditions, psychopathy really is beneficial, then does it make you a better criminal? To find out, he sent out a survey to more than 300 inmates in a bunch of medium-security prisons across the state, computing a criminal competence score for each inmate by comparing the number of crimes committed with their total number of non-convictions, e.g. seven non-convictions out of a total of ten crimes equals 70% success rate, Aharoni uncovered something interesting. Psychopathy does indeed predict criminal success. That said, there's a limit. A very high dose of psychopathy, all the dials turned up to max, is as bad as a very low one. Instead, it's moderate levels that code for greater accomplishment. Precisely how psychopathy makes one a better criminal is open to debate. On the one hand, psychopaths are masters at keeping their cool under pressure, which may well give them an edge in a getaway car or an interview room. On the other hand, they're also ruthless, and might intimidate witnesses into not coming forward with evidence. But equally plausible, and apposite to spies and grifters alike, is that as well as being ruthless and fearless, psychopaths are in possession of another, more refined personality talent. Exactly like the world's top poker players, they might also be better at controlling their emotions than others, when the stakes are high and backs are against the wall which would give them an edge not just outside the courtroom when planning and affecting their nefarious schemes and activities, but inside it as well. 
Up until 2011, the evidence for this was largely circumstantial. Helena Hakanen-Nyholm, a psychologist at the University of Helsinki, had observed, in conjunction with Bob Hare, that psychopathic offenders appeared more convincing than non-psychopathic offenders when it came to expressing remorse, which is odd, to say the least, because it's something they're unable to feel. But a quick look at the context of such observations before the court just prior to sentencing, before the court to appeal a sentence, and before psychologists and prison governors at parole board hearings aroused the suspicions of psychologist Stephen Porter. The issue was one of effective authenticity. Remorse aside, Porter wondered, were psychopaths just better at faking it? Porter and his colleagues devised an ingenious experiment. Volunteers were presented with a series of images that were designed to evoke various emotions and instructed to respond to each with either a genuine or a deceptive expression. But there was a catch. As the participants viewed the emotionally charged pictures, Porter videotaped them at a speed of 30 frames per second and then examined the tapes frame by frame. This, in the deception condition, allowed him to screen for the presence of physiognomical lightning strikes called micro-expressions, fleeting manifestations of true unadulterated emotion, invisible in real time to most people's naked eye, that flash imperceptibly through the shutters of conscious concealment. Porter wanted to know if participants exhibiting higher levels of psychopathy would be more adept at disguising the true nature of their feelings than their lower-scoring counterparts. The answer, unequivocally, was yes. The presence or absence of psychopathic traits significantly predicted the degree of inconsistent emotion observed in the deception condition. Psychopaths were far more convincing at feigning sadness when presented with a happy image or happiness when looking at a sad image than were the non-psychopaths. Not only that, but they were as good as volunteers who scored high on emotional intelligence. If you can fake sincerity, as someone once said, well, you really have got it made, it would seem. Cognitive neuroscientist Ahmed Karim has taken things one stage further and with the aid of some electromagnetic magic, can significantly improve the career prospects of both con artists and secret agents. Kareem and his team at the University of Tübingen in Germany can make you a better liar. In an experiment in which volunteers role-played stealing money from an office and were then interrogated by a researcher acting as a police detective, as an incentive to deceive the detective, the would-be thieves were allowed to keep the money if successful. Kareem discovered that the application of a technique known as transcranial magnetic stimulation, TMS, to the part of the brain implicated in moral decision-making, the anterior prefrontal cortex, elevated participants' line quotient. It gave them a higher like you. Precisely why this should be the case is not immediately obvious, and researchers are considering their options. But one possibility is that TMS-induced inhibition of the anterior prefrontal cortex implements the restriction of a neural no-fly zone over conscience, sparing the liar the distractions of moral conflict. Such a hypothesis is consistent with research on psychopaths. We know from previous studies, for instance, that psychopaths have reduced gray matter in the anterior prefrontal cortex, 
and recent analysis using diffusion tensor imaging, DTI, conducted by Michael Craig and his co-workers at the Institute of Psychiatry in London, has also revealed reduced integrity of the uncinate fasciculus, the axonal tract, a kind of neural aqueduct, connecting the prefrontal cortex and amygdala. Psychopaths, in other words, not only have a natural talent for duplicity, but also feel the moral pinch considerably less than the rest of us. Not always a bad thing when the chips are down and the decisions must be made under fire. Cool of the Moment Of course, it isn't just liars who benefit from a dearth of morality. The ethically challenged may be found in all walks of life, not just in casinos and courtrooms. Take, for instance, the following exchange from the 1962 film The War Lover. Lieutenant Lynch. Now, what about Rickson? We never know what stunt he'll pull next. Can we afford to have that sort of pilot? Can we afford not to have him? What's your opinion, Doc? Captain Woodman. Rickson's an example of the fine line that separates the hero from the psychopath. Lieutenant Lynch. Which side of the line do you place Rickson? Captain Woodman. Time will tell. I suppose we're running a risk. But then, that's the nature of war. The War Lover, set in World War II, features a character called Buzz Rickson, an arrogant, fearless B-17 pilot whose genius at aerial combat provides the perfect outlet for his ruthless, amoral dark side. When a bombing mission is aborted due to adverse weather conditions, Rickson, much feted by his crew for his daredevil flying skills, disobeys the order to turn around, diving under the cloud cover to drop his deadly cargo. Another of the bombers fails to return to base. Rickson's elemental predatory instincts revel in the theater of war. Assigned by his commanding officer to a routine sortie dropping propaganda leaflets, he buzzes the airfield in protest, setting the scene for the above dialogue between his navigator and the flight surgeon. It's a fine line, as Captain Woodman says, between hero and psychopath, and often it depends who's drawing it. Characters like Rickson don't just exist in the movies. Of a number of Special Forces soldiers I've tested so far, all of them have scored high on the PPI, which is no real surprise given some of the things they get into. As one of them, with characteristic understatement, put it, the lads who took out bin Laden weren't on some paintballing weekend. Such coolness and focus is illustrated in a study conducted by the psychologist and neuroscientist Adrian Rain and his colleagues at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles. Rain compared the performance of psychopaths and non-psychopaths on a simple learning task and found that when mistakes were punished by a painful electrical shock, psychopaths were slower to pick up the rule than non-psychopaths. But that was just the half of it. When success was rewarded by financial gain as well as by avoidance of shock, the roles reversed. This time, it was the psychopaths who were quicker on the uptake. The evidence is pretty clear. If the psychopath can make out of a situation, if there's any kind of reward on offer, they go for it, irrespective of risk or possible negative consequences. Not only do they keep their composure in the presence of threat or adversity, they become, in the shadow of such presentiment, 
laser-like in their ability to do whatever it takes. Researchers at Vanderbilt University have delved a little deeper and have looked at how the unblinking, predatory focus commonly displayed by psychopaths might actually be mirrored in their brains. What they've discovered sheds a completely different light on how it might feel to be a psychopath, and, as such, opens up a whole new perspective on precisely what makes them tick. In the first part of the study, volunteers were divided into two groups, those exhibiting high levels of psychopathic traits and those on the low side. The researchers then gave both groups a dose of speed, otherwise known as amphetamine, and, using positron emission tomography, PET, scrutinized their brains to see what might unfold. Our hypothesis was that some psychopathic traits, impulsivity, heightened attraction to rewards, and risk-taking, are linked to dysfunction in dopamine reward circuitry, elucidates Joshua Buckholtz, the lead author of the study, and that because of these exaggerated dopamine responses, once they focus on the chance to get a reward, psychopaths are unable to alter their attention until they get what they're after. He wasn't far off the mark. Consistent with such a hypothesis, the volunteers displaying high levels of psychopathic traits released almost four times as much dopamine in response to the stimulant as did their non-psychopathic counterparts. But that wasn't all. A similar pattern of brain activity was observed in the second part of the experiment, when instead of being given speed, the participants were told that, on completion of a simple task, they'd receive a monetary reward. Note to the researchers, if you need any more volunteers, call me. Sure enough, fMRI revealed that those individuals with elevated psychopathic traits exhibited significantly more activity in their nucleus accumbens, the dopamine reward area of the brain, than those scoring low on psychopathy. There has been a long tradition of research on psychopathy that has focused on the lack of sensitivity to punishment and a lack of fear, comments David Zald, associate professor of psychology and psychiatry and co-author of the study. But those traits are not particularly good predictors of violence or criminal behavior. These individuals appear to have such a strong draw to reward, to the carrot, that it overwhelms the sense of risk or concern about the stick, it's not just that they don't appreciate the potential threat, but that the anticipation or motivation for reward overwhelms those concerns. Corroborating evidence comes from forensic linguistics. The way a murderer talks about his crime depends, it turns out, on what type of murderer he is. Jeff Hancock, professor of computing and information science at Cornell, and his colleagues at the University of British Columbia, compared the accounts of 14 psychopathic and 38 non-psychopathic male murderers and uncovered notable differences, not just in relation to emotional pixelization. The psychopaths used twice as many words relating to physical needs, such as food, sex, or money, as the non-psychopaths, who placed more of an emphasis on social needs, such as family, religion, and spirituality, but also in relation to personal justification. Computer analysis of taped transcripts revealed that the psychopathic killers used more conjunctions like because, since, or so that in their testimonies, implying that the crime somehow had to be done in order to attain a particular goal. 
Curiously, they also tended to include details of what they'd had to eat on the day of the murder, the spectral machinations of the hand of primeval predation. Be that as it may, the conclusion is little in doubt. The psychopath seeks reward at any cost, flouting consequence and elbowing risk aside, which, of course, might go some way toward explaining why Belinda Board and Katerina Fritzen found a greater preponderance of psychopathic traits among a sample of CEOs than they did among the inmates of a secure forensic unit. Money, power, status, and control, each the preserve of the typical company director and each a sought-after commodity in and of itself, together constitute an irresistible draw for the business-oriented psychopath as he or she ventures ever further up the rungs of the corporate ladder. Recall from earlier that stark prophetic caveat of Bob Hare's You'll find them, psychopaths, in any organization where your position and status afford you power and control over others and the chance of material gain. Sometimes they do a good job, but sometimes, inevitably, they don't. And if the reward ethic gets out of hand, the boom, rather predictably, can quickly turn to bust. Arrogant and fearless Buzz Ricksons may be found all over the place, in pretty much any field you can think of, including, oddly enough, banking. And Rickson, in case you were wondering, ended up dead, crashing in an inglorious ball of flames into the white cliffs of Dover. Context of white supremacy, that is where we will pick up at next Friday, Hot Reading. We're still in Chapter 4, but we'll be on the subtitle, Hot Reading. Right on. I hope folks got constructive information uh, from the portions we read today. Uh, if you have commentary that you'd like to share on the second audio segment, or if you have anything uh, that you forgot to add for the first audio segment, the number to dial 641-715-3640. The code 564-943. 61 if you would like to participate. All of the folks who dialed in with a hand up should be with us. Uh, if you have commentary you would like to share, feel free. Uh, we have about 30 minutes left in the broadcast, so please do not wait until the last minute. If you think you have a question, comment, something significant that you want to add to the dialogue, uh, feel free. But folks with a hand up, uh, feel free to chime in. Greetings, can I be heard? Greetings, retired firefighter. Yes, this is my uh, first uh, appearance uh, on the uh, this particular book read session. Uh, kind of like was uh, halfway following uh, the reading when I could. Uh, I heard the I heard the uh, the name Phil Spector <laughs> on the last one. Uh, I definitely know that name. I don't know everything about him, but I do know uh, that uh, he was, uh, uh, I put it this way, with the, it's, it's popular now of uh, especially a lot of uh, powerful white males who are uh, being uh, chastised and or fired for uh, 
uh, what uh, people call sexual harassment. Uh, well, uh, I would say uh, Mr. Spector was well ahead of of that uh, popular thing now, uh, as well as a very violent person. Uh, but as I've heard uh, some of the callers, and I think you also, Gus, say that uh, he is uh, in the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh, he's kind of like was kind of like up there with uh, the same person that uh, basically uh, uh, controlled uh, Whitney Houston. He's if if not, he may be more more profound than that person was. Uh, also, ironically, I, I, I do know about the movie War Lover. The person that they were talking about was played by Steve McQueen. Uh, but anyway, I got a question. Uh, what is the author, has he gave a meaning to the word psychotic? And if so, what was it? Uh, well, psychopathic is the, the word that he's using. Most I mean, psychopathic, frequently. I'm sorry. <laughs> psychopathic, yeah. For sure. The, uh, is the word that he's using most frequently. He spent a good chunk of time in the first chapter uh, talking about uh, the different definitions and even talking about there's a great debate over what qualifies as a psychopath and, you know, who, what, who gets to determine uh, what a psychopath is and is it, uh, are you, is it, does it come down to you end up having a criminal record or is it based on uh, just your behaviors and how you treat other people? Uh, he spends a good bit of time talking, uh, sharing the debate about that in the early uh, chapter of the text. I'd have to go back to chapter one to give his exact definition of what he says is a psychopath. Well, give me the short, narrowed uh, version of what whatever he said, if, if you can uh, compact it like that. Uh, you'd have to give me one second because I think that's back in chapter one. Okay, okay. Uh, that that'll that'll contribute towards me being able to follow what's what's going on. Yeah, I mean that that's. I mean, I'm just trying to be logical uh, when I hear a person using a word over and over and over again, and plus is a part of the uh, the title. Uh, that I, I would like. I would ask that person. Uh, well, what do you mean when you say, you know, whatever that word is, and this word is, is psychopath. But anyway, uh, that's all I have to say for right now. I'll listen to, to everybody else. Thank you. Indeed. Indeed. I'm going back through my notes to see here what he has as soon as I get, uh, his definition, uh, or the one that he's going to use for the book and not, you know, what he's saying. Other people say, I will share. Uh, other folks have commentary. Feel free. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. All right. Thanks. And I'm greetings to the firefighting squad as well. It's good to hear you this evening and your insights were great too. Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, he, he said something here I find interesting on page 101. He says, needless to say, the fact that Johnny went on and got a job with the, with MI, MI5 uh, the British equivalent of the FBI didn't surprise any of us. And whatever it is he does for them, he is, by all accounts, pretty good at it. Such is his coolness, charisma, and demonic power of persuasion. One of his colleagues once told me at a party that even if he had a telephone cord wrapped around your neck, he'd be charming the bloody pants off of you. Quote, he'd strangle you with his own halo, the guy said, and then put it back on as if nothing had ever happened. Didn't need, I didn't need any convincing. 
Now, that's just uh, just a straight blueprint of how white people function. They can murder you and then just eat lunch or go have sex with somebody or do whatever else they choose to do. Um, and instead of, to me, <laughs> he tries to make this seem like this is a personality trait solely of psychopaths when it's white people. So white people are psychopaths. Um, and that's just the way I interpret that particular section. On the next page, he says something very interesting. Um, he says, suggesting the elements of the three personality styles, narcissism, Machiavellianism, and psychopathy, expedite a dual, al- dual process alpha male mating strategy. I just like what he did that. I'm going to change it to a quantity. I always said that um, for me, uh, white supremacy, racism, white supremacy, was a combination of acute narcissism, psychopathy, and sociopathy. But I have to add Machiavellianism because that kind of speaks to what Dr. Marimba Ani um, talks about with rhetorical ethic and, um, and just the ability to be so deceptive to make someone think that you care about them in some way or you're doing something for their benefit when in reality you're basically murdering them um, slowly. So um, I just found that to be quite fascinating, and I think I'm going to adopt that Machiavellianism and make it a quantity rather than uh, Trinity plus uh, fear of genetic annihilation. Um, also, he said something on 107. One of the more important, one of the most important things that a grifter must have in his possession is a good vulnerability radar. Reminds me of um, J- uh, Jeffrey Dahmer. Morant illuminated in a comment reminiscent of the work of psychologist Angela Book. If you recall from chapter one, Book found that psychopaths were better than non-psychopaths at discerning the victims of a previous violent assault simply from the way they walked. Most, quote, most, folk, most folks you come across pay no attention to what they say when they're talking to you. Once out, the words are gone, but a grifter will zone in on everything. And then it says, uh, like therapy, you're trying to get inside the person. Figure out who they are from the little things, and it's always the little things. The devil's in the detail. You get them to open up, usually by telling them something about yourself first. A good grifter always has a, has a narrative and then immediately change the subject randomly, abruptly. Um, I've seen white people do that so many times, it's ridiculous. And to have it written out so so well um, is just brilliant. And it goes, again, Jeffrey Dahmer. Jeffrey Dahmer had a radar for those black males that he was murdering, um, and he made it crystal clear. He knew who he could victimize, and the, the vast majority of those people were young black males. And in other, in other cases, uh, Asian non-white males, with only two being actual white males that he killed. And I found it interesting. He attempted to commit his first murder at the age of 15. He was waiting on a, on a running track um, for, for this jogger that he found appealing with a baseball bat. And the day that he was lying in wait to beat his brains out, the guy that didn't show up that day. Um, and that was recorded in the documentary that I saw. So that's to show you how young they start with the psychopathic behavior. Um, excuse me, um, on page 110, he writes, precisely how psychopathy makes one a better criminal is open to debate. On the one hand, psychopaths are masters at keeping their cool under pressure, which may well give them an edge in a getaway or car or an interview room. On the other hand, they are also ruthless and might intimidate witnesses into not coming forward with evidence, but equally plausible and equally opposite, op- excuse me, opposite to spies and grifters alike is that as well as being ruthless and fearless, psychopaths are in possession of another more refined personality talent. Exactly like the world's top poker players, they might also be better at controlling their emotions than others, 
when the stakes are high and backs are against the wall, which would give them an edge, not just outside the courtroom when planning and effecting their nefarious schemes and activities, but inside it as well. That also reminded me of Jeffrey Dahmer, um, the way that he was able to keep his cool when he just drilled a hole in this, uh, this uh, 13, I think, year old uh, Asian male skull and had him walk in the streets bleeding. The police stopped the young man and then guided him, the guy, right back to Jeffrey Dahmer's apartment for him to actually kill him overnight. Um, I'm going to stop there. I hope I might get a chance to say something else later. I have like maybe a couple things, but I want to give someone else a chance to speak. Thank you, and I will now meet my line. Appreciate that, Roz. Uh, any of the other folks that have a hand up, if y'all had commentary on the second audio segment, proceed. Not be heard. Yes, sir, Rob. Okay. Uh, I took a couple of notes here. Uh, first note, uh, what Rob spoke on, uh, detecting vulnerability. Um, it seems that... Uh, dealing with white people, um, it's like they always probing, um, looking you like directly in the eye and being like extremely close, um, seem like they're probing, um, colonize your brain, uh, synapse by synapse, um, patience, uh, looking for the pressure points, um, wrote down uh, self-disclosure uh, when he spoke about you have to uh, the best way to get information is to uh, do some self-disclosure and then you'll get the information that you want and um, also wrote down distraction um, that really stood out um, and the last thing that I wrote down was uh, ethically challenged um, what I'm getting uh, from the reading, uh, it's kind of sound like a, a roadmap for people that classify themselves as white um, to kind of normalize the uh, psychopathic behavior uh, that they engaged in. Um, ethical behavior is a uh, decision uh, that we all make, uh, right or wrong, good or bad. And um, it seems that people that classify themselves as white um, are uh, all psychopaths. And um, I'm starting to wonder, um, are people that classify themselves as white, um, are they just evil, period? Um, came across a clip today with uh, Nelly Fuller and uh, Dr. Welsing uh, discussing that very issue. Um, are white people just evil? And uh, Roz also spoke about the uh, devil was in the details. Um, and the, as Nelly Fuller said, like the devil is in the details and you can't allow any wiggle room. And uh, words are very important. Uh, with that, I'll mute my line. Thank you. Indeed. Other folks, appreciate that, Rob. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up. Uh, did you have commentary you wanted to share?
Uh, caller, oh, Mel, we should have you with us now. Uh, do you have commentary you want to share as well? Uh, yes. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Um, so I just want to confirm whether or not Johnny is his friend, who he said because of his personality he was able to join the FBI. It, sorry, that's a question. Is Johnny the friend he's speaking about? Correct, correct, he correct. Joined? He didn't join the FBI. Oh, okay. I think he joined uh, M M uh, sixteen or whatever the British, uh, the British counterpart to that is. Okay, I was just thinking when he says that. I think he's the quote. His friend has a demonic power of persuasion. I'm just thinking in my head, like, I do not have friends like this. Um, who <clears throat> like have stolen my papers in the past and stuff like that. I mean, maybe, maybe. I mean, there's like little rotten kids who kind of, I guess they grow up to be not so rotten. Like they're just forever, whatever reason. I guess bratty when they're younger and so like that. I just don't have friends like that. I was just thinking to myself, but um. I also appreciate the firefighter from Florida asking for the definition because I was kind of confused about that myself, but I, I need to probably go back in the reading. Um, so I think as a female, I'm very disgusted by the whole section where he is talking about psychopaths being really sexy to women um, and how they just have this allure and this charm that just possesses women and that it causes them to have their genes continuing over time because obviously they haven't been bred out. And I'm just thinking, like, there's a – there was an article I was reading from the UK, I think The Sun, where Charles Manson has kids. He has, I think, uh, at least four kids. And, and there's a story in this article about him taking one woman across the country to be part of his family, like he's recruiting attractive women to be part of his quote-unquote family. And the way he has kids with her is that he gives her drugs and he induces her into like a sex orgy. And I think he had another son by another woman, and that son committed suicide. And I was just thinking of, like, the earlier examples of, like, the slave masters and Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings. Basically, I, I'm, I'm thinking that, like, th- these people aren't sexy. These people are just manipulative. Like everyone else is saying, they're just, they just know how to pick their victims very well. But not only that, their victims are under influences often enough when they're being, like, actually taken over. Things that they might otherwise be lenient to, they're downright impossible to defend themselves against when they're drugged and induced. And I find that... I'm just seeing a lot of psychopaths raping people. I'm not really seeing a lot of psychopaths, you know, just finding these, like James Bond. Like, I I didn't like that example at all. Um, The part where he says that uh, psychopaths use distractions and they use them fast uh, to get truth out of people, I thought that that was an important uh, lesson. I'm reminded of a documentary called The Shock Doctrine that uh, basically talks about how Western forces, U.S. US, uh, white supremacists basically, go into foreign countries, start cataclysmic, crazy situations in order to take advantage of that chaos and overthrow governments. Um, That was from a documentary I've seen called The Shock Doctrine. And there is a part where he's talking about psychopaths and their brain activity. He's talking about a reduction in their brain use, I think, something about a gray uh, frontal cortex of their brain. And when he was talking about the brain part, I was reminded of CTE, the, uh, I think the chronic traumatic like injury that happens to your brain uh, in football that they found, but it happens in other uh, situations too, but that they found in a number of ex-football players. And I saw an article in I think Scientific American where they were talking about the link between CTE and psychopathy. And I was wondering, I guess what the ramifications of that were, like CTE symptoms being memory loss, anger, depression, I think inability to basically fully control yourself in certain situations. And I was wondering if 
to some extent, does this kind of intimate that there might be a making of psychopaths of, uh, among black people where there wouldn't have been any because of the sport of football? Um, which might be a reach, but it's just something that came to me. And then my last point, oh God. So <clears throat> um, he, he says that in, in testimony, psychopaths often use the phrases uh, because, uh, because this, you know, to happen, I had to do this or since that. And he says that there's an attempt for them to remove uh, the entire, well, partial or entire responsibility of the crime from them because they had to do something since this happened. And I was thinking that's actually really common in criminal defense in general. Um, even if you're not dealing with a psychopath, if you're dealing with someone who they just stole something, I mean, like a bike or something like that, or, you know, maybe armed robbery or just like any kind of thing like that, um, it's just pretty common in criminal defense overall. It's, it's, it happens to also be what killers say and psychopaths. And I'm just thinking, like that right there is an example in this book where he uses circumstantial evidence to sort of point to, well, that equals this. Like in an earlier section, in the last section of this, the part that we're reading now, he talked about how there were some bones found like from the Ice Age and how they had violence uh, shown on the bones, like through markings, like as if someone attacked the person through their bones, like the forensic evidence. But he doesn't provide any context for that. And so an issue I often find in like uh, archaeology and anthropology, a class I took, um, talked about how... Uh, Archaeologists here in California, for instance, would come across Native American bones and items and stuff like that, and they found this one object, and they thought it was a sex talisman because it was just this round, perfect little object. And like, it has to be some. And they started making perverted jokes about it. Like, it has to be a sex object, sex object they had, and they found it was a fish lure, and it wasn't a sex object at all. And I'm just thinking, the example of those bones, that person could have been a criminal being punished. That person could, that could have been a starvation situation, which no one wanted. I mean, that could have been a crazy person being taken down. He gives no context to the bones. But because of that circumstance, there being bones of violence demonstrated upon them, he says, oh, well, there must have been, a, I mean, violence has always been in our history. You know, we must have always, I guess, been like that or something like that. And this sort of circumstantial evidence I find just keeps kind of popping up. And it's not like medical apartheid, which like uh, Dr. Asayan was talking about earlier, where she gives specific examples, this equals that. He just kind of throws out circumstantial evidence. And I'm just finding that a little disturbing. Um, that was all. Right on, right on. Um, I guess with the history of violence, how far, certainly the last 500, longer than that, there's a lot of evidence of violence. Uh, what what other details would you need for to substantiate that violence has been with us for a long time, other than the scratched uh, skulls that he talked about? I don't think it's... I can definitely believe that violence is in our history, and particularly violence on other people, Probably not for good reasons. Like there's, I'm not going to say there's always been greed, but I can believe that there's always been greed. But when he uses it in this context of psychopathy, um, to say that the violence here must have been inflicted by other people and for some maybe self-serving means, I'm getting the, the feeling that he's saying it for that reason, that it was self-serving and violent and possibly unnecessary, maybe that the, the person doing the violence was a psychopath. I'm getting that feeling that's the context he's placing it in. That violence has always, always existed, I would not argue at all. Got it. Got it. Okay. Appreciate that, Mel. Uh, do we have anybody that we missed, anybody who had a hand up, who had commentary they wanted to share that we have not heard from? Grand. I'm assuming we nabbed everybody. Please do not wait till last minute if you think you have something that you would like to share.
Uh, some of the notes that I took from chapter four. Uh, okay, with chapter four, yes, Johnny is his childhood friend uh, that he talks about at the beginning of the text, and he does go on as he, as I said, to work for uh, M15. Uh, it's the equivalent of the FBI over there. Uh, let's see. Uh, I even in the the sentence where he's talking about Johnny and he describes him as having coolness, charisma and demonic power of persuasion. I don't know that I've ever heard all of those characteristics put together for one person being cool, charismatic, and demonic. Racist man, racist woman, racist child. Uh, And it's still that uh, where he said at the very beginning of the text that this was not intended as glorification. It still very much sounds like that to me. I think most of us would like to be considered cool and charismatic and persuasive perhaps not demonic uh the next one let's see where he says talking about johnny uh is it pure unadulterated chance that johnny is a psychopath and just so happens to work in the field of military intelligence with a question mark he has says that repeatedly when he gave the chart earlier in the book or not a chart i guess it was just a listing of professions that are more likely to draw psychopaths i already said enforcement officers was there surgeons lawyers uh, military personnel he gave a long list of folks who you would think you would want people who have some sort of what they call moral compass about doing the correct thing uh next he says when he's talking this in my view goes in the same line where he says not only that but they talking about psychopaths in addition are more likely to have a greater number of sexual partners and a stronger inclination toward casual short-term relationships than men who are low on such traits uh again i think in the system of racism white supremacy uh, i think dr welsing and many others have talked about how racists have set this up for them whites to have greater sexual access uh, to non-white people and uh, to each other, to other whites. Uh, I can totally see how that would play in a system uh, of terrorism uh, that would reward individuals who are violent and ruthless and all the other characteristics uh, that he's laid out. Incidentally, I would not see uh, where if you are a non-white person, a black person, if you have those traits where you're going to be rewarded in a system of white supremacy, I was thinking that throughout that you would probably be punished, uh, regarded as a criminal, a super predator, someone who needs to be drugged. Uh, we need to do some experiments on you to figure out what's wrong with you. Maybe we need to get you a lobotomy or uh, what have you. Uh, that generally strikes me as how a black person would be treated, uh, where he says, uh, all of this sets, uh, female pulses racing. Uh, I highlighted that because there is an assumption uh, of heteronormativity. I bring that up just because, Uh, of us reading The Delectable Negro uh, and where you have a lot of whites uh, who are raping and sodomizing same-sex members. Uh, We should not just have a a default uh, that their only sexual interest uh, is in opposite-sex members. That is not the case at all. You can see see that with some of the sex scandals uh, that are coming out right now. That sexual depravity is is not limited to a uh, heterosexual expression uh, where he continues... When he's talking about James uh, James Bond, uh, he's clearly disagreeable, very extrovert, and likes trying new things. He points out including killing people and 
new women. Uh, it just it reminded me of all the contra- controversy when there was going to be a black actor playing James Bond, and you had legions of whites who were upset about that and saying James Bond is supposed to be a white person. If James Bond is a psychopath who enjoys killing people and having frivolous, irresponsible sexual intercourse uh, without any sort of connection, we do not want that portrayed as a black person. We're not going to have the same enthusiasm and zeal for cheering on a black person carrying out that role as a white person. I thought that was significant. Um, Continuing. Yeah. And he comes right on the next page where he says uh, that the two traits impregnate as many females as possible, hit the road before anyone can call you daddy, that that might uh, be a facet of maximizing your reproductive potential. Again, if black people are accused of doing this, you're going to be castigated and talked about forever. This would not be something that's glorified. And we're going to talk about this as serving some sort of useful function uh, in propagating the species. Uh, continuing. Let's see. Where he talks about. The psychopaths uh, making better financial decisions. I had a challenge on that because he's consistently giving these different experiments and what have you where it's, oh, wow, the people that are psychopaths, they're more aggressive. Uh, if there's an opportunity to benefit, even if it's if it's risky and there's a chance for a payoff, they're more likely to engage in these behaviors uh, than, quote unquote, normal people who don't have these psychopathic traits i was and he even mentions these same people engaged in finance they were responsible for the chaos that happened in 2008 with the great uh recession i when i when he mentioned all of this i'm thinking of enron i'm thinking of bernie madoff like these people do not make great financial uh, decisions what you have is thieves and crooks and shysters, as he said, the dude, when he was doing uh, the interview at the bar and the guy took his wallet after they bought a $400 bottle of Cristal, that's what you have. I just feel like too often uh, it's being glorified as though these people are doing great things or they're capable of uh, making great financial decisions. No, these people are about graft, theft and unpunished graft and theft. I think you had a lot of folks with that Enron thing. They were not criminally prosecuted. They got away with impunity. Same thing happened with the uh, financial recession. What were they saying? Uh, uh, too too big to jail and all that nonsense. They had all these little ditties where you had tons and tons of white people uh, who went out and stole, committed criminal activity. They were not punished. Are we supposed to think that these folks made great financial decisions just because they were psychopathic and were willing to take a risk or 12 in committing these crimes uh, continuing where he says they're doing these studies. And I guess some people have the warrior gene, uh, a monomine oxidase, a poly- polymorphism called M-A-O-A-L previously, if controversially associated with dangerous psychopathic behavior that people that had this warrior gene they were the aggressive one they were the enrons they were the madoffs and it still to me sounds like it is worshiping celebrating violence having this warrior gene makes you stronger or gives you an advantage uh in certain respects because you are not going to take any half measures do anything necessary to succeed uh continuing 
Uh, I thought it was just more that minimizing. We talked about that with Neil Postman, crazy talk, uh, stupid talk, uh, where later on he says, ironically, the rule bending, risk taking, thrill seeking individuals who are responsible for tipping the world economy over to over the edge are precisely the same personalities who will come to the fore in the wreckage, not to help and solve the problem, but to further enrich themselves and take advantage of the rest of us. And this is not rule bending. This is criminal behavior. Uh, it should not be, you know, minimized or we're going to soft pedal this if we're talking about people who caused extraordinary financial catastrophe worldwide, uh, which has still not been corrected. Uh, when he talked about the vulnerability radar, that's something we've talked about before and for years, way before we got to this and pinpointing that whites seem to be very good at identifying victims, non-white people that they can abuse, terrorize, stress the importance of black self-respect so that you do not look as enticing when the Ted Bundys and Charles Mansons and Jeffrey Dahmers appear. I do want to emphasize pretty much all of the people that he's picked out have been males. I do think that's an error. Uh, White women are extraordinarily extraordinarily dangerous. I could easily see how one reading this uh, could conclude that psychopaths are males. Females are not psychopaths, and that is not correct at all. Uh, You can think of the situation at the University of Hartford now where the young white woman, uh, Brianca Bruchot, was bragging about committing chemical and biological warfare against her black roommate, bragging uh, about carrying out that that agenda against her roommate. Think of that one right there. Uh, He also used the term, later on he says, precisely how many Precisely how psychopathy makes one a better criminal is open to debate. On the one hand, psychopaths are masters at keeping their cool under pressure. Uh, Again, even using the term masters in the slave context in terms of they have the highest efficiency or the highest skill with regards to being able to function in an undisturbed manner, even when it's pressurized, even when they're committing criminal activity or plotting who they're going to kill next, they are still masters, just like Thomas Jefferson and other white enslavers, white terrorists, the use of that word there. Uh, And then later on when he switches it up and he says, like you, the context specifically where he says, uh, Implicated in moral decision-making, the anterior prefrontal cortex elevated participants lying quotient. It gave them a higher like you uh, and talking about uh, psychopaths and their ability to be deceptive. And I think he really focused on that towards the end of the chapter at being able to trick people uh, where you're in a situation that's sad and you can look set or you can cry on cue. We've talked about that. I think Farrell Winfrey talked about that. And I think we've had other whites where they've said if something goes bad, white women in particular, if something goes bad, if a situation works out wrong, cry. That'll help you get through it. Or if the situation is one where you're supposed to be happy, you're supposed to look like you care about the person that you're with, being able to smile and make it look like you are empathizing with them when you're just plotting. I'm going to shoot this person and scatter their teeth all over the rug, or I'm going to eat this person for lunch tomorrow with some fava beans or whatever it happens to be. Uh, I did have a few more notes, but we have done our time. I don't want to get too far. And I also wanted to make sure when he's talking about bin Laden being killed later in the point, I'm just looking at the highlight when he says, uh, the lads who took out bin Laden weren't on some paintballing weekend. Now that is uh, a quote. That's not him, but the fact that he included it, these are not lads. Lads is generally a term used to refer to children 
these are killers <laughs> that are out there uh, going out to, to carry out these missions and kill non-white people. Uh, the, the reference that was used right there. Uh, but just to get back to retired firefighter, he in chapter one and two, he devotes a good chunk of time with regards to explaining what a psychopath is. I wasn't able to go back to get his exact definition, but he does include other people's definition for psychopath. I was going to read theirs, but that's not his definition. Uh, and then he goes to ask questions about theirs and picking out some of the traits that he regards as being uh, core to what a psychopath is. Uh, but that's in chapter one, chapter two. I did quote the definition that he gave for one of the other folks, but it's not his definition specifically. Uh, did anybody get have any comments they wanted to make sure they got in before we wrap things up? Folks satisfied? Um, yeah, I, I would like to get in something real quick. Um, I'll try and keep it as short as possible because I know we're getting off the air shortly. Um, it was okay. It was um. Oh no, I, I missed it. Oops. Okay, I think I found it now. Yep, here we go. Okay, so it's on uh, page one fifteen where he says our hypothesis was that some psychopathic traits, impulsivity, heightened attraction to rewards, and risk taking are linked to a dysfunction in dopamine reward circuitry. Elucidates uh, Joshua Buckholt, the lead author of the study, and because and because of these exaggerated dopamine responses, once they focus on the chance to get a reward, psychopaths are unable to alter their attention until they get what they're after. That is the needle point precision that white supremacists function with when they practice racism on us. It is something that compels them. They get a dopamine reward from abusing, killing, raping, doing all the terroristic things that they do to us. That is the psycho machinations, and that, I think, is the driving force beyond genetic annihilation and the fear of that that drives them to do what they do. They enjoy it. Like, um, I think it's Nero who said it, white people kill for fun kill black people for fun. Thank you. I'll mute my line. For sure. We will wrap up there. Uh, just to make sure I got it in uh, for retired firefighter. One of the definitions that he does include for psychopath, a grandiose sense of self-worth, pervasiveness, superficial charm, ruthlessness, lack of remorse, and the manipulation of others. Uh, short version, uh, but again, that's not his. Uh, that's a gentleman from the U.S. National Association of Chiefs of or excuse me excuse me wrong person oh i did have the right person at first u.s national association of chiefs of police that's his definition for a psychopath he gives a few others as we go uh, along in the book and picks out points where he disagrees or adds to it but you can pick that back up uh next week or the next few weeks because we'll be on this book for at least another three weeks before we conclude we're in chapter four right now and the book goes all the way to chapter seven uh, with that, if folks have commentary that they want to write in, uh, we'll have ample time to read that before we finish the text up. You can drop an email untiljustice at gmail.com, untiljustice at gmail.com. Uh, with that, thanks for everyone uh, tuning in, participating. I hope uh, the book has been of some constructive value. Uh, if you're learning anything or getting additional information on what it means to be white, uh, we'll be here tomorrow. Compensatory call in 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. Uh, tune in, looking to catch up on what's gone down over the past seven 
days. Uh, with that, uh, we will call it a broadcast. Uh, since it is the weekend, I will certainly emphasize sobriety would be best. You do not want to be messing around and have Jeffrey Dahmer, Charles Manson, Ted Bunny, even Kevin Dutton uh, in your presence and not be aware, not be paying attention. Uh, whites have a long documented history of taking advantage of non-white people, particularly when we can't think correctly uh, because we are intoxicated. Let's do all we can to preserve our brain computers so that we can be sober, clear thinking and make great decisions to solve the problem. Racist man, racist woman, racist child. Certainly buckle up if you are going to be in a vehicle. Let's do all we can to minimize contact with race soldiers. That said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cal signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, no brother. Problem. You're a victim. Uh -huh. Shut my up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.